Okay, we are live on the Edlow podcast. This is the part where I'm supposed to tell everybody to subscribe. So hit that subscribe button. Um, we're all, we're finally on Apple Podcasts. That was user error. That was my bad. Um, but anyway, we're there. We are here uh, live with Matthew Harris. Hello, uh, Dr. Harris. Hi, Josh. Nice to be with you today. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So you... I'll tell the story to everybody. I, I did a I did a podcast a while back on faith crisis and some issues in the in the church with um, with Patrick Mason, and uh, um, I saw your name in an article on Joseph Fielding Smith, and uh, it had to do with his role in the issue that we're coming to talk about today. Um, uh, we have on on uh, the priesthood ban for. Uh, people of African descent. And I asked uh, Patrick, I said, what do you know about this Matthew Harris guy? And he had nothing but great things to say and said he is the leading scholar in the world on the race and the Mormon church in the 20th century. So you come highly regarded and we just have huge expectations for what you're going to tell us today. So um, I have read uh, your book, a couple of your books, since we got in contact, the Mormon Church and Blacks, a documentary history, which you wrote with Newell Bringhurst, and then also your book on Ezra Taft Benson and the making of the Mormon right. And they're both fascinating. I've gotten through I've gotten through the the Mormon Church and Blacks more than I have Ezra Taft Benson's. But man, uh, we were talking a little bit off air. Um, you have gone incredibly detailed into this history. Um, where do you get this stuff? Like, where do you get the documents? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's the, the best place for documents, of course, with Mormon history is the church archives. So this it's called the LDS Church History Library. It's in Salt Lake. It's right near Temple Square. And a lot of the stuff is restricted. So that's kind of tricky because with um, contemporary documents, it's you have to... You, you apply to see something if it's restricted and uh with general authorities in particular you're not likely to get admittance and so what i've done is um i've gotten some admittance to be honest um three requests but i've worked with the children of the general authorities mm. so for example i got access to spencer kimball's papers at the church history library through his son edward kimball who wrote a terrific biography of his father's administration. Mm -hmm. I've worked with um, Marion Hanks's son, who's given me lots of things. Um, William Bangader's son, Malcolm Jepson's daughter. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So I've worked with a lot of general authorities and their kids and they, you know, they interview me. They want to know if I'm going to give you my, my father's diaries. I got to know who you are and if I can trust you. <laughs> right. And cause you're reading, you know, you're really, really, you're reading sensitive material about, family, about decisions, about just any number of things. And anyway, i tell you a quick story with the Kimball Diaries. So, of course, you read for a purpose. I'm reading about race and what did his father say about the priesthood ban and all of that. But you can't help but see other things. And <laughs> one day, uh, Spencer Kimball, President Kimball, wrote in his diary, he said, I think LeVan has a better capacity for law than Edward does. Well, LeVan was the oldest son who was also a law professor, just like Edward. Mm. Mm. So after I read that, I of course I chuckled and I went back to Ed Kimball and I said, Ed, 
it's clear to me that your father thinks more highly of your older brother-in-law than he does you. Yeah. And, <laughs> and Ed just burst out laughing, you know, and he said, it's true. He was smarter than me. You know, he had <laughs> but you, you just, you know, see little things like that. And, and I would make quips to Ed. I would say, you know, man, some of you Kimball boys were a little rebellious back in the day, you know, with long hair and listening to some rock and roll and your dad didn't like it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, those little intimate moments. You know, what's interesting about that too, and getting access to, I got to imagine getting access to diaries and personal, you know, personal writings like that. You really get an opportunity to see a, a more human side of these general authorities than they're probably issuing out publicly at general conference or in talking to the press on these issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, with, with the race issue is you, uh, you think about this for a moment. This is a ban that prohibits black people from, you know, the full privileges of the church. And they're the only racial minority who falls into this exception. And it's a policy that began in 1852 that each of the church presidents inherited over time. And quite frankly, they really just didn't think to criticize or question it, uh, at least until the 20th century. They just accepted it uncritically. And you find in their diaries that as they come across the saints who are either black or biracial, in those days they called them mulatto or mixed, but, um, they would see these biracial Latter-day Saints who would just agonize that they can't serve a, a mission, they can't go to the temple. And Spencer Kimball and David O. McKay and Joseph Dillon Smith, they would write in their diaries, you know, I saw brother so-and-so today. He can't serve a mission because he's he bears the curse and my heart aches for him. And so you get a chance from their diaries to see how these policies affect people and how it affects them in turn. And it's really a, a powerful thing. We, we lose sight of the fact that, that we talk about policies a lot, but policies really in isolation are just policies unless you connect them to people and how they affect and shape people, including the leaders. And so for me, that was the biggest thing uh, with those diaries is to see these men agonize over the ban and how it had harmed black and biracial Latter-day Saints. And I don't use the word harm lightly because yeah. it did harm them. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, you got to think. You, you um, I'll, I'll share a personal story, something I regret. Um, I don't think I've ever shared this story before. There was a time when I was a youth, I was a rambunctious guy, you know, a rambunctious kid, and one of my best friends who became a member of the church, um, he, he converted, you know, with us, um, he lived with me for, for, um, senior year of high school. Uh, he was of, uh, he was of, uh, native American descent. And, you know, we read the story about, um, uh, you know, the Lamanites and the dark skin being a curse. And, you know, we were young teenagers and played basketball together, wrestled together, did all this stuff. So we were always, we were always, you know, getting over on each other and making fun of each other. It's just the way we were as boys. And so when we heard that one time in church, I made a joke about it. And I just said, ah, you're cursed. Ha you know, it's a joke. And it really bothered him. I mean, like he got up and walked out. And 
I apologize. It was one of the few times I apologized to one of my friends for razzing him because I just didn't realize it was the first time I realized how significant that uh, that teaching and that doctrine really is, you know. Um, and it sounds like, you know, in your reading uh, or in my reading of your work, I got the impression that this ban um, was controversial for most of its existence. I mean, you know, people disagreed for quite a bit. Uh, you know, is that is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, there. Yes, that's that would be accurate because. The ban begins in 1852, and almost immediately, Black people are petitioning the church presidents for the priesthood if they were a man. If they were a man and a woman, they would be petitioning to get married in the temple, to get sealed. And what's interesting is that Joseph Smith ordained or allowed, allowed Black men to be ordained to the priesthood during his administration, but that abruptly changed with his successor, Brigham Young. So some early Black saints, they, they knew that they could have full inclusion or full participation uh, privileges, but that changed with Young. And so they petition and petition and petition. There's a, a black woman that some of your listeners might be familiar with. She's by far and away the most recognizable black woman in the church. Her name is Jane Manning James. Mm -hmm. And she wrote, I think, three different church presidents letters that I cite in the book that you referenced. A minute yeah, ago. I remember I was actually going to ask about her. Yes. Yeah, she, she wrote three three different church presidents saying, I long to be sealed in the temple. Please help me be sealed. And the saints, of course, were working out this sealing doctrine, not just husband and wife, but also polygamous relationships. And also, you know, Joseph Smith had this vision, this theological vision that he could seal the human family together. And so here you have these Black Latter-day Saints who were excluded from these sealings. And they, they really felt marginalized. And so she's, she writes these letters to the church president. Can I be sealed to my husband? You know, no. Can I be sealed to Joseph Smith as his servant? And no. And there's a context to that. Uh, Jane Manning James, who lived with the prophet at one point, said to J John Taylor, I think is who it was, you know, the prophet said I could be sealed to him as his, as his servant. You know, allow this to ha happen, John Taylor. And Taylor said no. Anyway, um, so black people are, are marginalized, they're excluded. And it's not until the mid 20th century where Latter-day Saints start to really perk up. And it's not coincidental that the Latter-day Saints perk up at the same time the civil rights movement's gaining momentum. Mm -hmm. And they start to look inwardly at their own church and say, you know what, this just doesn't seem right. I know what you, you said about curses and the scriptures and all of less valiant stuff in the pre-existence is another common uh, reason that blacks were kept from the priesthood and temple. I don't care about any of that. A loving just God, that doesn't make sense. And especially with the Book of Mormon, you know, 2 Nephi 26, that all are alike unto God. He denies nobody. He even lists the scripture, you know, black or white, Jew, Gentile. So uh, both white and black Latter-day Saints are perceptive to that scripture. And they're perceptive to the civil rights movement. They write the Brethren in Salt Lake letters. I mean, literally flooding church headquarters with letters. Why can't Black people have the priesthood? Why can't they have civil rights? Because the church wasn't supporting civil rights. 
And they would also ask, you know, why is the Hotel Utah, a church-owned property, beautiful, magnificent hotel that's now sadly gone, but why is that segregated? What does that have to do with the priesthood there? Mm-hmm. And so they're really putting pressure on the church. And Joseph Fielding Smith, who was the church's sort of doctrinal guru, he writes in a private utterance. He said, we're getting so many of these letters and these people, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, they're angry. Talking about Latter-day Saints. And so um, so the church starts, you know, they have this awakening moment that that we need to figure out what to do about these questions. And so what ultimately ends up happening is that when Brigham Young made this ban, it was it was more of a policy. I mean, it was just, he wasn't calling it doctrine, although I'm sure people interpret it as such. But there were a number of general or leaders, they didn't call them general authorities in those days, but there were a number of apostles who had all kinds of opinions about, you know, black people, the band, where they come from, like, Orson Hyde, for example, in 1855, he said, I think they were something about the pre-existence. And Brigham Young shot that down. That's, no, that's bad teaching, bad, bad doctrine. And he just you know, likens it into the biblical curse. Mm. Harley Pratt says something else about the pre-existence. And Brigham Young, again, nope, shoots it down. Well, it's not until after the American Civil War when the Pearl of Great Price is canonized, where B.H. Roberts in particular, but some of the other leaders, they start to resurrect this, this idea of the pre-existence. Mm-hmm. And they have differences, the church leaders. Um, B.H. Roberts says that, that they were less valiant. Wolford Woodruff, who was the church president, said something entirely different. He said they were fence sitters. They were neutral. They couldn't determine which side they're going to go, you know, Jehovah's, side, Jehovah's plan or Lucifer's plan in the pre-existence. So anyway, um, Joseph Fielding Smith in 1907, he said, you know, we've got all these racial teachings out there. They're just a bunch of theories by church leaders. And so we've got these theories that often conflict. And we've got people early on, too, who just don't like any of this stuff. Um, They push back against it. Some of the early apostles about the preexistence, the curse. And by 1947, as the church starts to globalize after World War II, the church will codify all of those theories into doctrine and they'll produce a statement in 1949. I think I said 47, it's 49. They produce a statement 1949 and it's not a statement that gets published to the church, but it's a statement that they use when Latter-day Saints have questions about the ban. They can say, here's our statement and you can read where it's doctrine and all of that stuff. And so that statement becomes really, really uh, the most authoritative thing the church has said about the ban to that point, because they had never pontificated about the ban, at least in that capacity as an United First Presidency. Yeah, and can you, real quick, before you go on, let me ask you a question about that. Because sure. um, this is something I find really fascinating, and that is um, there's been a lot of talk recently about when you can know when the brethren, the, the leaders of the church, uh, are speaking doctrine and not. And w- so perhaps you can explain a little bit uh, what the significance is that this letter signed by the first presidency means in making this doctrine. Yeah, maybe if, if I can for a minute, Josh, I'll give your listeners a, a broader perspective about LDS mm-hmm. doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so with Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and some others, 
when they talk, they it was doctrine. That's how they essentially treated it. And, you know, mm-hmm. Joseph Smith said some things sometimes that, you know, sometimes I talk as a man, sometimes I talk as a prophet. You know, right. Right. I, I have a huge methodological problem with that, right? <laughs> I think we all do. That's the struggle. Out, is he a man today or a prophet? I mean, right. Just, That's the struggle that I think a lot of people have is like, well, when are they talking as men and when are they talking as prophets? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So in the yeah. early church, they didn't deal with that. You were just supposed to sort of figure it out on your own. Well, anyway, by the early 20th century, the church put a somewhat of a control on that. They said that when the first presidency speaks um, and they sign a statement together, that would be considered doctrine. And this would be, that's probably the, the way the church does it well into the late 20th century or maybe even early 21st century. But by uh, 2012, Todd Christofferson gave a, a sermon in general conference, and he said that doctrine is defined when both the first presidency and quorum of the 12 um, are unified. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that, I perked right up because I've never heard the 12 being part of the equation. It was the first presidency. Right. So think of it as a check and a balance mm-hmm. that that it's not really doctrine in the church until the two highest quorums sign off. Whereas mm-hmm. for decades, it was just the one highest quorum. And before that, it was just the church president over the pulpit saying whatever he wanted to say and calling it doctrine, right? Right, right. And so that is a that is a check and a balance. And I know the general authorities, they've been, today's general authorities, they're very careful about what they say. They're told to be careful because members oftentimes interpret whatever they hear as doctrine. Sure. And so there are so many controls today. There's church correlation. There's um, oftentimes the 70s will have their talks vetted before they give them in general conference because they don't want, you know, folks to say things that are not, wouldn't be accepted as doctrine. Sure. (laughs) So the fact that in, excuse me, in 1949, they start sending this letter out, signed as the first presidency, that is, that is to be taken the same. And I, and I read that in your book. You actually have an have the full letter written that they would write where they say this is the doctrine of the church, signed first presidency. And, uh, and it seemed like they even put forth um, in that letter kind of doctrinized the reasons being, you know, the, the, the lineage from Cain and Ham and also this stuff with the preexistence, although it seemed in that 49 letter, they weren't attributing any sort of fence sitting. They just said, for some reason, we don't know. Is that? Uh, Yeah, very good. Yeah. They don't wade into that theological thicket. Are they, Mm -hmm. are black folks, are they fence sitters? Are they less valiant? And the, the quorum, they're divided. That's, that's Mm -hmm. why they don't really pick sides because the quorum of the 12, they're divided. Let me give you one example. In 1939, Apostle George Smith got up in conference and he gave the traditional uh, less valiant position from the pre-existence. And Apostle John A. Witso wrote a letter to his friend and he said, I don't know where he got the authority to say that because it's not true and it's not in the scriptures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is 1939, Witso criticizing one of his colleagues in private. And so when that 49 statement came out, uh, it was written by Reuben Clark, and he's a lawyer, very clever, sure. and recognized that didn't want to take sides and with the preexistence uh, differences. To me, the most interesting thing about that letter is 
two things. Number one, they call it doctrine. They've never called the church's race teachings doctrine to that point. So they use the word doctrine. And secondly, they say, they make reference that it was, you know, the doctrine since the earliest days of the church. Now that's really problematic because black men, as I mentioned a minute ago, they held the priesthood. We have at least five documented instances of of black Latter-day Saints holding the priesthood. And we have circumstantial evidence for probably two or three other men. Mm-hmm. And, and so the first presidency statement doesn't acknowledge any of that, although they know about a number of those leaders. They do know it because they write about some of them in private. And the other thing that's really, really interesting is they say that the band began, you know, again, with Joseph Smith in the early days of the church. The problem is they never found a revelation looking for the band. Where did the prophet, you know, utter that black people cannot go to the temple or hold the priesthood? And they looked. They looked and they looked and they looked over the years. Joseph F. Smith and his counselors, they wrote a Latter-day Saint man and they said, we've been looking and looking and we can't find a revelation from the prophet Joseph Smith, you know, banning black men from the priesthood. However, we believe it to be a practice and we plan on, you know, continuing the practice. So mm-hmm. they know that there's no, you know, founding revelation. There's, of course, there's not um, in the Doctrine and Covenants, there's nothing. So they're aware of that. And the 49 statement sort of belies that, um, even though they had been looking, couldn't find anything. They just felt comfortable saying that it was there and we just didn't find it, but it's there. Mm-hmm. And by 49, so they start to give this out in private. They don't, they don't publicize it. And in the mid 60s, there was a multi-volume uh, publication by a BYU religion professor named James R. Clark. And Clark is the, a relative to J. Reuben Clark, who was in the first presidency for a number of years. Anyway, um, he undertook this ambitious effort to publicize or to publish first presidency statements about any number of issues. And I think the first one, it was like five volumes, and they're behind me on my shelf here. But the first one came out in early 60s, and I think the second, the last volume, volume five or something, came out in the mid 70s. So it was a pretty lengthy thing. Mm-hmm. Well, he petitioned to include a 1949 statement in there. And Joseph Fielding Smith, who was then the church historian, also the senior member of the Quorum of the Twelve, um, he said, no, we, we don't want anything controversial in there. And what was interesting when he turned him down was that Joseph Fielding recognized that by the mid 60s, you know, at the apex of the civil rights movement, that this letter would be controversial. We don't want it out for public consumption. Mm-hmm. And there was a first presidency statement on polygamy. I think he denied too. He didn't want it in there. So the brethren are really, really, you know, sensitive to the civil rights movement because if the church, if they support civil rights, it's going to draw attention to the church's race teachings, right? Mm-hmm. If they reject civil rights it's going to draw attention to the church's race teaching. Yeah. So their strategy is to remain silent. Mm-hmm. I mean, mum's the word. Mm-hmm. And so what happens in the 1950s after Emmett Till is murdered, this 15-year-old boy from Chicago who went to Mississippi to visit a relative and didn't understand the racial uh, tension there. Anyway, allegedly flirted with a white woman and led to his demise. The woman's husband and his brother or friend they ended up killing him. Anyway, um, there's, uh, so during those, with Rosa Parks getting arrested for her ordeal on the bus, 
the leaders recognize that they need to be really quiet. And so they tell politicians in Washington, D.C., don't do anything in the Congress or the Senate that deals with race. Stay away, because people will ask you, you're a Mormon, how could you do this? So the first presidency led by David O. McKay and his counselors tell Mormon politicians to stay away from the stuff. Um, give you one example, Arthur Watkins, who was a long-term senator in Utah, he was uh, best known for, for people who were involved in American history. He was the best known as one of the leading voices in the U.S. Senate to protest Joseph R. McCarthy, that mm. communist mm. red baiter. Anyway, um, but Arthur Watkins received a letter from the first presidency in 1957 and said, Dear Senator Watkins, we understand that you're supposed to be on a committee to evaluate interracial marriage. We respectfully plead with you to get off that committee. It could only harm the church. Sincerely, David O. McKay, Stephen L. Richards, J. Reuben Clark. Hmm. And, um, and of course, Senator Watkins was a good Latter-day Saint. He was loyal, and so he did what the first presidency asked him to do. Wow. Um, Bell, Bell Staffer was another one. She was the president of the General Relief Society. And as such, she was invited to go back to um, participate in national women's organizations across the United States, representing the church, of course. And Reuben Clark, before she went back to, I can't remember the name of the conference, but it was in D.C. And they were going to talk about race and civil rights and all of that. And Reuben Clark pulled her aside and he said, you make sure that whatever committee your committee does when you're there, that you don't go on record supporting civil rights. Don't do it. It'll, it'll be bad for the church. And what's interesting about that is, is that Reuben Clark himself is, he had already gone on record in 1936 saying that the church should support civil rights. But he's telling her just the exact opposite in 20 years later. Right, right. And it didn't represent his personal views. It represented the fact that he feared that it would come back and bite the church. Sure. So, so that's interesting. This, this might be a good point because this is something that I find really interesting just in speaking with members of the church generally. <clears throat> um, so all you're doing here is sharing facts, right? You're telling me facts. And there are some members of the church, good people, active, but they're going to listen to this and think that this conversation is being critical or overly critical of the church. And I want to point out that um, one of the things that you said when I first requested that you do this podcast appearance, you gave me a rule. And the rule was is that you didn't want any criticisms or derogatory statements about the church said on the podcast, which I greatly respected. And I got to tell you, um, yeah, you know, um, that's, you know, I, this is just simply the facts, you know? Well, you know, there's, as a historian, so I'm a professional historian, I'm a professor of history, trained in history, and it's, it's a little bit more than the facts, of course. History mm -hmm. is, it's, um, it's a conversation about the past. And it's an argument about the past and how we interpret sources. So a fact would be, a fact would be that, I'll use an example that I just gave a minute ago. A fact would be that the first presidency wrote Senator Watkins in 1957 and said, please don't 
serve on that committee that would support interracial marriage. That's a fact. We have the letter. We saw it. He read it. He talked about his response to the letter in his diary that I have. So that's a fact. The interpretive part would be my writing about that letter. What does that letter mean? And the larger trajectory of that letter is that the church is really, really fearful that they'll invite criticism if you have a high-profile Latter-day Saint like Senator Watkins serving on a committee dealing with interracial marriage. Even though it had nothing to do with you know, churches or, or it's Latter-day Saint church, the brethren are fearful that it will come back to the church. And I interpret that letter, and I see that fear, and I have reasons to interpret it that way because they're doing this with many people at the time. All mm -hmm. over the so, so sometimes we do offer interpretations, and as professional historians, we hope that our interpretations are valid. We hope that there's corroborating evidence for the things that we say. And in my case, I just mentioned that I, I have multiple pieces from the first presidency. They're telling lots of different LDS politicians, stay away from anything racial because it's we're we're worried. So, but anyway, back to your original point is that I find myself frequently explaining what we as professional historians do in Mormon studies, we call it, and versus say how the church produces history. And the the church for a long time, I have to be careful when I say the church, because the church is made up of different people with different viewpoints. Sure. And so let me give you a, really a clear cut example that I think is instructive here. That the apostles in the 1970s, and probably to this day, I'm certain, they have different views about how to tell Mormon history. So you get guys like Ezra Taft Benson, Marky e. Peterson, and Boyd K. Packer, who argue that Mormon historians shouldn't write history unless it's faith promoted. And then you get historians like, or not historians, but church leaders like President Kimball, even Elder McConkie, as conservative as he was theologically, he argued, along with uh, President Kimball, that our historians should tell the story, warts and all, because if we don't tell it, somebody else will. Mm -hmm. And President Kimball was so determined to not whitewash anything that when his son, Edward, wrote the first draft of his presidential biography, his father said, you're making me look way too good. You know and I know that I've got lots of flaws. You need to write about some of my flaws in here. Mm. And that was, I mean, that's one of the reasons why you know, I really respect President Kimball so much is that he recognized that this was good for the church. And so there were differences about how to tell the Mormon past. And so I tell uh, Latter-day Saints is that there are two kinds of history in the church. There's like devotional history or devotional writings. That's the sort of thing you get from Desert Book. And its purpose is, of course, to increase your testimony, to enlarge your faith and all of that. Uh, Professional history written by people like me and people at BYU or Utah State or anywhere really who does Mormon studies. Um, it's not our, our, our goal is not to make the church look good or to build testimony. That's desert book. That's devotional stuff. Our goal is to be respectful, to be balanced, to put the Latter-day Saint experience in context, right? Because Mormons aren't the only ones who oppose civil rights in the 50s and 60s. Other religions do too, right? So you want to talk about how the Latter-day Saints are unique, how they're different, and you, you want to essentially make an argument about the past that would be justified by the sources that you're using. 
And with Latter-day Saint or any kind of religious history that you write, it goes through a very difficult peer review process. In order to get a book published with uh, an academic press, scholars have to sign off on it and agree to it. And oftentimes there are revisions involved because you, you've got more work to do. Whereas devotional history doesn't have that rigorous vetting process. It's, you know, the process is mostly probably in-house where the in-house team, they know what they're looking for, they know their market. And so they're working with the authors to make sure that what they're writing is, you know, faith producing. So there's been that tension, Josh, um, in the church for a lot of years about church history. And I know that tension is still there today because some of the church leaders, some of the brethren have strong views about, you know, Mormon history and, and the race uh, issue and others, not so much. Mm. Well, I think the thing that's important to note is that we can, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation is, is we can have this conversation in a respectful way and um, clear up some of the misconceptions. Because if you're, you know, if you're an active member of the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we've all been sitting in a gospel doctrine class when someone says something on one of these controversial topics and you're like, that doesn't sound accurate, <laughs> you know, or, um, and, and also I think one of the things that is, at least I, I, I've said this many times on my podcast when I talk about these, these kind of Mormon topics is that for some reason I've been the lightning rod for a number of friends who have gone through faith crisis in the last few years. And here in California, where I'm at, there's quite a few just for a number of issues, the LGBT issues, and also just geographically money moving away, things like that. And, and, uh, but, but I have found anecdotally that often <laughs> the issue, the issues that they have with these types of topics don't come from that they were there, but by the way it's handled after the fact and the way that um, history is kind of skewed a little bit to suggest things that aren't necessarily accurate. So I think accuracy would help a lot of people with these things. And this 1949 thing, it was fascinating to me. I, I had, Before reading your book, I didn't really know the history. I knew, okay, so we weren't sure if it came from Joseph Smith. It probably came from Brigham Young. I know, it, I, I found in your book very fascinating, actually, kind of the, the, the swinging view that Joseph Smith had of slavery. And, you know, at one point he was a, kind of considered himself an abolitionist, and then other times anti. And then when his presidential campaign, he was anti-slavery. And a lot of that had to do with the geographical region the Mormons were in at that time. Right. Um, and then, uh, and then I found it fascinating, the things that you talked about, and I actually wanted to go into that. So Brigham Young, when he, when he gets to, to the great basin in Utah, you, you cited some factors that you, you felt was evidence of things that may have contributed to the decision. One of them being, you know, um, lineage and um is it it, 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 it it make sure i understand this correctly because i you know i had a patriarchal blessing and the patriarchal blessing said i was adopted into the tribe of ephraim which i always assumed and i think is doctrine now that you're not really necessarily the blood of the tribe of ephraim but you've been adopted in through your baptism and through your faith uh into the church but it sounds like in your book that that wasn't the case back then. They actually wanted to actually ethnically be considered a part of the tribes of Israel. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. So, yes, the church has a a um, 
ever since the church's founding, Latter-day Saints saw them as, of course, heirs to the Israelite covenant that God had worked out with Abraham. And each of these, these um, tribes had specific responsibilities in the church. And some of these folks would be literal members of the tribe of Israel. Others would be adopted in. And you were adopted in through your baptism, keeping your baptismal covenants, living you know, a righteous life and all of that. And over time, um, black people, interestingly enough, um, black Latter-day Saints were in a quandary. The church had always allowed them to have their patriarchal blessings. And for, for your listeners who may, I'm certain your listeners, if they're LDS, they would know this, that one of the purposes of a patriarchal blessing is to give guidance to your life, to make you hopefully hopeful about your life, but also your lineage to designate those special responsibilities that God wants you to perform, you know, in, in the church. Well, what do you do if you're black and you believe that as a black person that your lineage is from Cain or Ham or Canaan? I mean, think about this for a moment. I mean, Cain is a, he's a biblical counterfeiter right? Murdered his brother. And all of a sudden, you're going to go to a blessing that's supposed to make you feel good. And you're going to be told that your lineage is through a biblical counter figure who murdered his brother. Right. And it doesn't make you feel very good. Not just murdered his brother, but like gloried in satanic worship. Yeah. I mean, yeah. All, all of that. And so for the church, the church has a difficult, um, or the leaders have a, they have a difficult way of figuring out what to do with lineage for Black Latter-day Saints. And so what happens is, is that you get lineage declarations that, frankly, are all over the place. You get Black Latter-day Saints being told they're from Cain or Ham or Canaan. You get some being told that they are from Ephraim or Manasseh. And that's problematic, right? Because Ephraim, particularly Ephraim, but Manasseh is also, those are priesthood and temple blessings. Or the, the lineages that would, Ephraim, for example, is the lineage that's designated to run the church. The leaders would come from the tribe of Ephraim. And so you get black people um, being told that their, their lineage is from Ephraim. And that doesn't really square because this is before 1978. So the ban's still in effect and they're being told that they're from this privileged lineage. You also get, to they get told that they're from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's nothing specific in terms of Ephraim or Manasseh or Cain even. It's just this, broader uh, promise that you come from their their line, their loins. And then you get one final um, thing that's fascinating is that you get patriarchs who they have enough self-awareness that if I give a black person a cursed lineage, it's going to offend them. So they don't give them any lineage at all. And so there's a number of black Latter-day Saints in the 20th century who don't get their lineage declared. And they they know that there's that's not right. So they go back to the patriarchs and they'll say, you forgot my lineage. I'm supposed to have lineage. And the patriarchs, you know, they don't know what to say because in some cases, the patriarchs would write into the general authorities, some of the brethren in the Quorum of the Twelve, and they would say, I don't know what to say. What, what guide, guide me, give me counsel. And so the Quorum of the Twelve, they had a meeting to discuss it in 1958. And they just basically said that, let the patriarchs decide themselves, you know, using inspiration, what lineage it is. So they didn't really answer the question, you know, give us some guidance. 
And then in 1970, they met again. And they, they just, they had an interesting discussion in 1970. They, um, one of the, they looked at old lineages all the way back from the 1800s. They looked at a report and they found that there was a lot of Cain and Ham and all of that in those lineage declarations. And uh, one of the apostles said, well, we can't do that. So let's just not give them any lineage at all. And then Elder Benson, Ezra Tapp Benson of all people, he said, no, the purpose of a blessing is to declare lineage. We have to give lineage. And so they left that 1970 meeting having resolved nothing because the whole purpose of the meeting was to sort of give guidance to the patriarchs who were giving lineage declarations all over the place. And so it was really a tough um, theological issue that, quite frankly, the brethren had never solved. And in the 1960s, the first presidency said very explicitly that black people cannot be adopted into the house of Israel. Because again, those are priesthood and covenant blessings, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Cain and Ham, those are those are those are not um, favored lineages. They're outside of the house of Israel. And so anyway, the first presidency tells uh, Bruce R. McConkie and other leaders that it is not the doctrine of the church to adopt black people into the house of Israel. And so in uh, March of 1978, if I can skip ahead for a moment, in March of 1978, um, President Kimball, he's known that he's going to lift the ban for a long time now. And it took him a long time to get to this point, not for him personally. He, he'd been wanting to lift it since the 60s. But he had a number of apostles in the 12 who didn't want to lift it. That was the holdup. And anyway, um, one of the apostles that came to his defense first and agreed to lift it was Elder McCaughey. And every time I share that with Latter-day Saint audiences, they're like, because he has- I, I found that so surprising. Yeah. Had, that's me too. Because he had such strong views about black people. And anyway, Elder McConkey was one of the first um, of the apostles to agree to lift the ban. And- so President Kimball went to Elder McConkie and said, we're going to lift this thing. we got to just continue to massage the apostles who were holding out still. And But I need you to write up a theological rationale for lifting it. And so Elder McConkie writes President Kimball in March of 1978, this lengthy memo in which he justifies doctrinally lifting the ban. And he says that Black people will be adopted into the House of Israel. And that's one of the, in my opinion, that's one of the beauties of, of the church and, and modern day revelation is that Spencer Kimball, who's now the church president, he can say, all right, this is what we're going to do. Whereas the previous first presidency said, no, that's not the doctrine of the church. But President Kimball, it's, he's in the driver's seat. He's the one calling the shots. And so this memo um, talks about that when black people become baptized into the church, that the curse is purged out of them. And I know it's offensive to our modern sensibilities today, but that's what he says, that the curse is purged out of them and that they will be adopted into the house of Israel and they'll be able to enjoy all the rights and blessings of any worthy member as pertaining to the priesthood and the temple. And that and that that happens at baptism, you said, that that's when the, the purses, this curse is purged. Interesting. Starts the process at baptism. Wow, okay. So... Yeah, and I think it's also important to, to note, because I I don't know why I never put two and two together, but I did from a TikTok video of all places, um, that 
the the priesthood ban i mean the implications of a priesthood ban on black families is so significant in the context of what we believe as a church not just because they can't hold a priesthood or give a a father's blessing or bless their child but it means that they can't go to the temple and seal their families and that is what you consider to be the thing that you need to do to get to the highest degree of heaven and that is what we all want we want our families together forever assuming that you're in a good relationship with your with your spouse <laughs> but i mean that's what we're you know that's what we're hoping for so um so the significance is so much more when you consider that it's not just a priesthood ban but it's a simple, essentially a temple blessing ban as well so yeah let me if you don't mind um josh i'm going to open up from the book that you referenced a minute ago yeah yeah, there's, a, there's a, an incredible letter. This is one of the most pointed letters I think I've ever seen in my research. And it's written by a man in a black man in Utah who um, who wrote the first presidency asking, I should say, lamenting that he couldn't have the priesthood. His name is David Gillespie. He's from Ogden, Utah. I tried to find him to look him up to see if he was still around, but I, I just couldn't. Um, let me just read, if I can, it's a, it's a lengthy letter, so I'm not going to read it all for sure, but let me just read a couple of, of parts, maybe. This is June 4th, 1967, and he writes, this is David Gillespie, Ogden, Utah. He's been a member of the church for a little while now. He writes, he says, Dear beloved President McKay, I too have been born of goodly parents and have been taught to love the Lord and to live us as he wants to live as he wants us to. I've spent many wonderful and happy hours attending Sunday school, primary, and other church activities with my friends. He goes through and gives his sort of life, how he became baptized and all of that. Talks about how he went to college. He met a wonderful girl named Lisa. And then he gets right into the heart of the moment. He said that um, the day arrived when our firstborn son, David, was to receive his name and a father's blessing. When a dark cloud seemed to hang over me, I, as I realized I could not give him that blessing that was reserved for a priesthood holder. Our wonderful war teacher, Brother Drayton, carried our son to the front of the chapel in the circle where, and in the circle were friends holding my son and a lifelong friend giving a father's blessing by proxy. I was denied the privilege that some fathers have since the dawn of creation because I lacked the holy priesthood. I could sense written upon my face a feeling of sadness and yes for the first time bitterness and he he goes on to the rest of it talking about how this exclusionary policy just just wrenched him and um what happens is is president mckay who by that point is in his late 80s i mean he's really slowing down cognitively he turns to his counselor a guy named hubie brown and he says brother brown can you just handle this and they did what they normally do with letters like this. They sent it back to the bishop and just, you know, counsel with the bishop on this. But th the truth is, is that this brother had already been counseling with the bishop. The bishop's hands are tied. He can't lift this ban. And President McKay um, never liked the ban to begin with. He never thought it was a doctrine. He thought it was a policy that could be lifted like by his discretion, but yet there were some of the brethren in the 12 thought it was a doctrine that required a revelation. And so President McKay was moved by letters like this. And I don't know if you want me to say this, um, Josh, I can talk about what I mentioned before we went on the air today about him lifting the ban or wanting to lift it. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. 
So President McKay, during the last part of his life, um, one of his counselors, Hubie Brown, uh, very liberal apostle, proud Democrat, um, in spite of what you know members of the church think about the church being a one-party church, but <laughs> Hubie Brown was a, a very liberal Democrat, and that's how he defined himself, as a liberal Democrat. He's from Canada, or at least his formative years were in Canada. And so he wasn't, you know, he was different from the rest of the apostles who grew up in Idaho, Utah, Arizona. Anyway, Hubie Brown didn't like the ban and he pressured President McKay to lift it. And he solicited the help of President McKay's two sons who didn't like the ban either. And they knew what President McKay thought. All three of those men knew that McKay thought it was a policy rather than a doctrine. So they really, really pressed him. And President Brown said that if President McKay doesn't lift the ban before he dies, his successor won't lift it and his successor's successor won't lift it. And of course, the successor to McKay was Joseph Hilling Smith, um, that Brown said wouldn't lift it. And then of course, uh, Smith's successor was Harold B. Lee. And so Brown felt this pressure, we've got to lift the ban. This is in September of 1969, just as the civil rights movement is dying down a little bit. Um, just for some context, BYU was under federal investigation for civil rights violations, which is not known to the church at this time. This is all private stuff. And also um, BYU is, there are dozens and dozens of teams throughout the American West um, that are boycotting BYU athletic teams because of the church's race policies. So anyway, it's in that context where the two McKay sons and President Brown, they approach the ailing president and they say, it's, let's do this, let's lift the ban. And President McKay relents and he found a, a man who had been working at the Hotel Utah for 36 years, this loyal black man um, named Monroe Fleming. And they were gonna ordain him to the Melchizedek Priesthood, September of 1969. And when uh, Harold B. Lee, who was the most powerful apostle at the time in the Quorum of the Twelve, by powerful meaning authoritative, people deferred to him, they knew that he would be the next church president because Joseph Fielding Smith was ahead of him in seniority, but he was so old, he wasn't going to be around very long. So they anticipated that Harold B. Lee would be like David O. McKay, would serve for at least two decades because he was 74, early 70s, I guess, at the time. So anyway, um, Harold B. Lee got word of it and put a stop to it and just said, we're not going to ordain them. It requires a revelation. Each member of the 12 has to support it. And it's section 107 of the Doctrine and Covenants says it has to be unanimous. And it's really, really instructive to, to remind people that Lee thought it was a revel it required a revelation because it was a doctrine, which would require unanimity in the 12. Whereas, of course, President McKay thought it was a policy that he could change at his discretion. So there's the difference. Mm -hmm. And anyway, when uh, President McKay, when Lee exerted his pressure and President McKay backed down, he just basically said, I'm too old. I'm not going to fight him. I'm not going to not going to do it. And President Brown was crushed because he argued that that um, the ban was harming the church. It was really, really hurting the growth of the church, the image of the church. And so... I tell you one. This is something that I've never said any before on a podcast, so you're going to hear it first today. No, right? An Edlo exclusive. Exclusive. I'm excited. <laughs> you got an exclusive. It's it's this right here. So before Hubie Brown died, 
1975, he turned to the church president, Spencer Kimball, and he said, promise me you'll lift the ban. Wow. And Spencer Kimball said, I'm going to do it. Wow. And this is 1975. I should also tell you that Spencer Kimball in September of 69 also supported Hubie Brown. Hmm. And when Harold Lee exerted his influence and got President McKay to change his mind, Elder Kimball, who was then the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve, he went into Hubie Brown and he, he was crying, just sobbing tears. And he said, I know you're right, the ban has to be lifted, but I can't because of Brother Lee. Mm -hmm. And what he meant by that was that Brother Lee is going to be the church president soon. I'm going to be the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. We have to work in harmony. I can't cross him. Mm. And so uh, Elder Kimball um, backed off, didn't change the ban. But when he became the church president, the first thing he wanted to do was to lift the ban. Mm. And I shared this with his son after I'd gone through Elder Kimball's paper, President Kimball's private papers. I went back to Edward Kimball and I said, I said, I'm going to run an idea by you, push back. And again, Edward Kimball wasn't just a son who heard anecdotes around the kitchen table. He was a biographer and had access to the papers. So he was kind of in the know. And he's done some really good work on, on the priesthood ban himself. Anyway, I told Edward Kimball, I said, your father was going to lift the ban the minute he became the church president. But he had to secure buy-in from some of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve. That's why it took him six years to lift it by the time he became the president to the time he lifted it in 78. It took him several years. And Edward Kimball looked back in his chair, leaned back and smiled at me. And he said, you're absolutely right. Wow. And of course, you know, Ed Kimball, as much as I admire his work, he wasn't at liberty to write this in his book. Sure. Because the church hasn't done, this is me, I don't want to sound critical, but I've shared this publicly many occasions with, even in speeches with general authorities present, I think they agree with me, at least the ones that heard me say this, but the church has not done a very good job telling the story with mm -hmm. the lifting of the ban. You, yeah. you read a church manual, you read a, a biography from a general authority. It just sort of happened in June 1st, 1978. You know, the president had a revelation. And the truth is that's, that's not how, that's misleading. And the reason why it's misleading is because President Kimball was very, very proactive in reaching out. And I don't mean just praying, you know, praying to God, help me lift the ban and all of that. That wasn't it at all. The prayers were structured as though, you know, I know the ban needs to go. Help me to convince the my fellow brethren in church leadership that it needs to go. And so some of the brethren had some very, very strong views about Black people and their role in the church. And President Kimball, just like David O. McKay had members in the quorum when he was a leader with those similar views, President Kimball had to help them overcome those views and to uh, persuade that those, those apostles that this was in the best interest of the church. You can't globalize the church if you can't give Black people the priesthood. Yeah. If, if you can't give Black people the priesthood, you can't missionize in Black Africa or the Caribbean or wherever, right? Right. And so President Kimball knows that if, if, if the church is to fulfill the scriptural mandate to take the gospel to every kindred nation, tongue, and people, you can't just say, you know, we're not going to go to the continent of Africa, except Africa. Right. 
Right. And so the minute he knows theologically, this is incompatible with his vision of the globalizing church. The band. You know, it's it's interesting. <clears throat> it, maybe you can expound if you know. If anyone would know, it would be you. How how hard during that six years did uh, President Kimball work? And and who were the holdouts? <laughs> You'll have to read my next book. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for a teaser? Yeah. The, um, well, okay. Let's go backwards for a moment. So I mentioned a minute ago that Elder McConkie was the first person who came to President Kimball's defense. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I guess I should say how he came to it. But the um, there were three early apostles that had experiences with black members. And in 1971, there was a new group. It was a support group for black Latter-day Saints called the Genesis Group. Mm-hmm. And it's an all-black, really, I should say, it's not an all black. It's it's a mixed race uh, worship service today. But anyway, the idea of the Genesis group was it would present a space for Black Latter Day Saints to worship with people that they you know that they had stuff in common with, whether it's a shared hardship to racism, to segregation, to the ban, just whatever. So the whole idea with the Genesis group forming was to reactivate black Latter-day Saints who fell away because the church just, it was a white church. It wasn't really meeting their needs as black and biracial members. So the brother and at least some of the brethren were really sensitive to this. And so they wanted to create this Genesis group. They tried it in 1955. They proposed it and it got shot down wisely probably because it, it wasn't really a, um, it wasn't meant to be segregated, like, you know, black people over there in the church and white people over there. That wasn't the original conception. But it would look pretty bad in 1955 when you have all of the, the racial stuff going on with Rosa Parks and Emmett Till and all of that. And, you know, Dr. King, Martin Luther King saying that uh, being really critical of Protestant churches that segregate their pews. Sure. David O. McKay didn't want to fall prey to that. And so he nixed it in 1955 because the optics wouldn't look good. So they resurrected the idea in 1971, and the idea would be that Black people could meet in their own worship service once a month. And of course, a white priesthood holder would have to run it because they don't have the priesthood. So the sacrament would have to be given by white folk. Anyway, um, they were really nervous about it because they didn't want the Genesis group to turn into a form for lobbying for the priesthood. And that's exactly, in the, during the early years, what happened. Is, and so... They put three apostolic advisors in charge of the Genesis group. One was uh, Thomas Monson, Gordon Hinckley, and Boyd Packer. And so they saw the internal uh, dissension within the Genesis group, these three apostles, and they saw how much they wanted the priesthood. They saw that they were good people. They were faithful and devout Latter-day Saints. They paid their tithing, but yet they couldn't have the priesthood. So those three men, not surprisingly, because of that personal experience, they too come to an early agreement that the ban needs to be lifted. Mm. And President Kimball recognized right away that he wasn't going to get anywhere unless he had the church's most authoritative doctrinal voice in his camp, and that's Elder McConkie. Mm-hmm. So President Kimball worked on Elder McConkie first and foremost. And he went to Elder McConkie and he said, 
this is in like 1975. So just do the math in your head for a moment, right? The ban won't be lifted until 78. Sure. So in 1975, he goes to Elder McConkey and he said, Elder McConkey, we've got a problem. We're building a new temple in Brazil. 85% of it's biracial, which means they won't be able to go. These people are giving, you know, these people, the, these so-called cursed Latter-day Saint people are giving their money and their time to the temple, this beautiful structure they won't be permitted to enter. What, what do you suggest we do, Elder McConkey? And it's a... <laughs> it's it's almost comical in my view because you know president kibble knows what needs to be done sure but as any good you know person skilled in organizational management he's trying to have elder mcconkey come up with a solution mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so elder mcconkey writes him this letter and he says dear president kibble i think we should give them the priesthood you know yeah. sure <laughs> kibble's like Hmm, gee, good idea. Yeah. And, oh, I'm uh, glad you thought of that. Yeah. This book here by a memoir that Desert Book published um, of Elder McConkey by his son, Joseph Fielding McConkey. So this is 2003. I burst out laughing when I read the chapter of the priesthood revelation because Joseph Fielding McConkey. Uh, <laughs> It's a decent memoir, so I'm not going to criticize the memoir at all. But I laughed when I read the chapter of the Priesthood Revelation because he basically gives his father the credit for it all <laughs> without recognizing <laughs> that President Kimball knew darn well what needed to be done. But sure, you know, he wanted Elder McConkey to come to that conclusion on his own. Right. So, so Elder McConkey comes to the conclusion about 1975 and um, Boyd Packer, of all people, that's another one that people are you know, surprised at because he was very conservative. But Elder Packer, Elder Hinckley, and Elder Monson um, come on board first, along with Elder McConkie. And those apostles will target some of the other holdups. Hmm. There two, there, there's three huge holdups. One is um, a guy named Delbert Stapley, who is an old line segregationist. I mean, he's very clear. He didn't believe in integration, doesn't support civil rights. Is he Is he from the South? No, he's from Arizona. Oh, oh interesting. Yeah, so he was an old line segregationist. Um, the other one was another old line segregationist, Marky e. Peterson, who was pretty high up there in seniority, who was just behind Elder Benson in seniority to the church presidency. So he was a segregationist, doesn't support lifting the ban. And then lastly, of course, Elder Benson, who was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve and had some very harsh things to say about Black people during the 1960s, calling civil rights, you know, communist fomented, the NAACP, this important civil rights group. They're led by commies. I mean, he, he said terrible things. And President Kimball had to rein him in and say, you know, you can't say that because we can't really grow the church and bring the gospel to Black Africa if you're calling Dr. King a commie. Right. And so kind of put a reined in Elder Benson a little bit. Anyway, so those three people have are the holdups. And in March of 1978, President Kimball wanted to lift the ban. But President Kimball is an astute student of history and he recognized what had happened to the church in 1890 when Wilford Woodruff issued the first manifesto mm -hmm. and I'm certain that your leaders or your listeners would probably know those stories because what happens is is that 
half the members of the Quorum of the Twelve support the revelation that President Woodruff announced. The other half said, no way, polygamy is a higher principle. We're not going to let the government dictate what we do. So there's a schism in the Twelve, and they get excommunicated uh, eventually. And then from differences about polygamy, there are multiple schismatic groups that break off over time. And, you know, we see some of them on TV today. President Kimball recognizes what happens or what could happen if you don't get a consensus in the 12. And so that's why he's really, really determined to get everybody on board to lift the ban. He tries to do it in March of 1978, and he doesn't have the support. Elder Benson, Elder Peterson, and Elder Stapley pushed back. And so he can't do it. And so on June 1st, he decides he's going to lift the ban. He writes out a revelation in May to prep this for the, for the June 1st day. And he um, calls Elder Peterson on a church assignment to South America. So that Elder Peterson is out of the country when this revelation is gonna occur. And Elder Stapley is in a hospital in Salt Lake. He's ill and he'll eventually die in August, two months later. That leaves one person in Salt Lake on June 1st who was a holdup. And that's of course, Elder Benson, who's in line to be the next church president. And when President Kimball, they had their meeting uh, that Thursday morning, they meet in the temple every Thursday, the brethren. And then after their regular meeting was done, President Kimball asked them to stay around and to talk about the priesthood ban. They'd been talking about it for the, for the previous few months, so it wasn't a surprise to anybody. Well, anyway, um, President Kimball says that, he said, I feel inspired to lift the ban today. And Elder Benson wants to table the discussion, doesn't want to talk about it. And that's when Elder McConkie, Elder Packer, Elder Monson, and Elder Hinckley all come to President Kimball's defense. Hmm. Now, those are the four people that came on board first. Three of those four men are the ones that experienced all the dissension in the Genesis group ranks. I didn't tell you that a lot of these Genesis members, um, they left. They left the church. They just, <coughs> I shouldn't say a lot, but some of them did. Mm -hmm. Some of them came back, too. But anyway, um, so they, they, they get up and Elder McConkie, for example, speaks first. He speaks for 10 minutes. And I can't prove this, but I have it in my mind's eye for those 10 minutes. He's speaking right at Elder Benson. Yeah. And, um, and he's, I do know what he says. Elder McConkie said that we have, in order for the church to, to move in to bring the gospel to these other nations, we've got we've to lift the ban. This is what God would require of us. And he also ties it into the second coming, that God can't come again and claim his kingdom until the ban is lifted. And then Elder um, Elder Monson spoke. Real quick, before you go into that, that makes a lot of sense. Because if you, if you understand the doctrine, isn't the doctrine that it needs to go to every kindred tongue and people before the second coming of the Savior? So that would naturally, if you can't get into these places because of a priesthood ban, you're not going to be able to usher in the second coming. So that makes sense. Another thing I find really interesting about this, just thinking about this before, and I want you to continue, but think about who we're talking about here. We're talking about Spencer W. Kimball, current president of the church, Bruce R. McConkie, I would say, at least at that point, I mean, I wasn't alive in 1978, just barely, but one of the most authoritative figures 
at the time. And then you have President Benson or Elder Benson, who would become the next president of the church. Gordon B. Hinckley, who would become the next president of the church. Thomas S. Monson, who become the next president of the church. Boyd K. Packer, who was basically the de facto, while all these guys were becoming members of the church in the first presidency, was the de facto, you know, president of the Quorum of the Twelve for most of my life. I mean, that's a pretty big group, to, you know, that's that's pretty, I find that significant, considering that these are the future guys who are going to be leading the church up until the 21st century and beyond. Well, so. it's it's fascinating, too, before we get back to the, just to finish that story, but it's fascinating, too, that the church had tried to go into Black Africa while the ban was in existence. They sent white missionaries there to run these places. In Nigeria, for example, in 1962, they, they'd been demanding missionaries and Nigerians had come across some church literature from Salt Lake and they, some of them had dreams and visions where they said, this is God's church. We want to join, send us missionaries, Salt Lake. And of course, the first letter they sent was in 1947. And then for whatever reason, in the early 1960s, more and more letters started to come from Nigeria to Salt Lake and they kept ignoring all the letters. And finally they said, we probably got to move on these letters, do something. Mm -hmm. So they decide to to send a, a guy named Lamar Williams to see what's going on there. He's a church um, employee, and they they dispatch him to Nigeria, and he meets with these Nigerian saints. He writes back, "Dear brother, and this is authentic. This is legit. They want the missionaries. They want their own chapels. They want to worship." And President McKay says that okay, that means that we have to call missionaries from the United States rule the priesthood to run their services. But President McKay is very astute and he says that I wonder how they're going to respond if we have white missionaries running all black churches. And so they recognize the again the optics don't look very good. Right. And um they had tried something similar in the 1850s in Jamaica. And um anyway, this is all to say that those experiments failed miserably because of course people want to run their own churches. We don't want sure. You know, a white person from the United States running our church. Sure. Are we good enough to run our own churches? Sure. So, you know, real quick, real quick, before you move on from that, one thing that, that comes into mind about that, and I'm sure we're eventually going to talk about Elder Bednar, but um, I was sitting in a, in a, I don't know why this just kind of came up in my head. I was sitting in a, uh, like a priesthood leadership meeting when I was an Elders Quorum president, and it was just bishops and Elders Quorum presidents. And it was, uh, he came and, and spoke to us and someone asked a question, which I found really interesting. He said, the, the question was, what keeps you up at night? And Elder Bednar said, I am concerned that tr the traditions of the Western church is going to choke out the growth in Africa. And, and he said, uh, if there's anything that's going to, hurt the um the growth of the church it's going to be the traditions of the church that do it and i just thought about that because yeah these these white missionaries come and start establishing these churches in africa you're going to get the western traditions of the church including belief in a a in black people as an inferior race cursed since the days of cain which i'm certain if the if black people in africa are are running their own churches that doctrine's not not there, right? Uh, so it's very interesting. Anyway, that's an aside. But well, I'll, 
I'll come back to that about when the ban gets lifted, what happens to all this doctrine. Sure. So anyway, um, June 1st, they're in the temple. Just to recap, Mark Peterson's away on church assignment by design. That wasn't mm-hmm. by fluke. The elder Stapley is dying in a hospital and elder Benson is the holdup. He wants to table the discussion on June 1st uh, in response to President Kimball announcing that he wants to lift the ban. And the other brethren in the room, they basically over, overwhelmed him. And they said, no, we need to do this. And as I mentioned, Elder McConkey gave a short little oration on the second coming. We have to do this. And Elder Monson spoke. Elder Packer then spoke third for about 10 minutes. So McConkey spoke for 10 minutes. Monson, 10 minutes. Packer, 10 minutes. Hinkley, 10 minutes. And they went all the way down to the most junior member of the quorum. And to Elder Benson's credit, he changed his position and recognized that this is where the brethren wanted to go. This is where the church needed to go and ultimately came on board with it. The day of the rev- on June 1st, um, Spencer Kimball called Mark Peterson in South America. And he said, Mark, this is what happened today. And I want to get your input. And Elder Peterson said, well, did all of the brethren support it? President Kimball said, yes, they did. Well, I suppose I won't stand in the way then. And Elder Peterson had, I mean, hardly a ringing endorsement, right? Right. Um, his, his, it's kind of funny, quick aside, his daughter, Peggy Barton, wrote a biography uh, of Mark Peterson that was published in 1984. And she says, unfortunately, erroneously, she said, my father was an enthusiastic supporter of the revelation. And mm. that would be false. <laughs> right. But anyway, um, maybe he enthusiastically supported it later, but certainly in the early years, he didn't. In fact, um, he was so old school, he told President Kimball that he wanted, when they published the revelation or what would become the, it's called official declaration number two, when they published the announcement, official declaration number two in the Desert News, Elder Peterson insisted that they uh, also publish a statement opposing interracial marriage. Because that was his fear that if you allow, you know, black and white folk to go to the temple together, then somehow, you know, they're going to be meeting and be too cozy and lead to interracial dating and marriage. And anyway, um, Elder Stapley, they went and visited him in the hospital and he agreed to support it. And so in that sense, it was unanimous. And um, here's something that your listeners will be really, really curious to know. So. The following week, President Kimball was to meet with each member with the quorums of the 70 and the presiding bishopric and the church patriarch. So they called a special meeting and he wouldn't say what it was about other than to say it's a special meeting. And it was so secretive that the instructions that came out from the first presidency's office was, don't even tell your secretaries about this meeting. And so, which is kind of interesting because it only heightens the suspicion even more, right? Right. You can't even tell your closest people. Anyway, so there's plenty of speculation among the first quorum of the 70. You know, Paul Dunn writes about, we thought it was going to be something about the second coming. And and uh, Marion Hanks says that, I think it's about the Negro. And so they're really speculating about what it is. But in that week's time, President Kimball was he was nervous is all get out. He was sick. He was like having this physical response. 
And one of my good friends, who's an expert in this topic as well, uh, knew Bringhurst, who co-authored this book with me, he couldn't understand when I told him this. He said, why would he be so nervous and sick? He just had this momentous revelation. The church is moving forward. I mean, this is the biggest policy change in the history of the church. Second, only the polygamy, perhaps. Why would he be sick about it? And I said, you know, funny you ask. Because he's worried that the quorums of the 70 won't support the revelation. There were holdups in the 12, and there are some holdups in the 70s. Hmm. And the biggest holdup is, or one of the biggest holdups, is the church patriarch, a guy named Eldridge G. Smith, who was um, who gave black who gave uh, patriarchal blessings to black members and never gave them their lineage, <clears throat> refused to give them their lineage, even when he was told to do, do so. And anyway, he was a kind of a stubborn guy. And it's one of the reasons why in 1978, President Kimball abolished the office of the patriarch because wow. of conflict. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so he's worried about Eldridge G. Smith. He's worried about some of the other of the 70 who had expressed themselves over the years. And um, when they go into the meeting, you know, there's prelude music playing as they amble into the temple. And Marion Hanks, who was like Hubie Brown, he had been pressuring to lift the ban for decades. I mean, he told President McKay, this isn't right. He told Harold B. Lee, I don't believe that black people are cursed. I just don't believe it. And he wasn't a crusader openly, but privately he made his views known. Well, as Elder Hanks goes into the meeting, Elder Packer meets him at the door. And Packer, of course, was a traditionalist. He had supported the ban for as long as he had He'd been in church leadership. He was called into the assistant to the Quorum of the Twelve in 1962. And I think in 1970, he was elevated to a full member of the Quorum. Anyway, he had opposed the ban like, like his fellow brethren. And he had clashed with Marion Hanks over the years over this very issue. They knew each other well. They worked in the church education system together as seminaries and institutes before they were both called into the general authority ranks. So they, were, they knew each other well. Boyd Packer meets him at the door he shakes his hand. He said, Marion, it is good that we're here today. And he starts to cry. And Marion Hanks writes in his diary, like, this is this is weird, because Elder Packer is not like this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a very stoic guy. Right. And he and it's good that we were here today. And Packer, or Hanks, to his credit, he knew right away what that meant, that it was about the band. And of all the 70 diaries I've seen, Hanks was probably one of the most prescient ones. He saw the writing on the wall. Anyway, so they get in there. Hanks sits down. He leans over to Paul Dunn, one of his friends and fellow core members, and he said, this is about the Negro. And they were playing, uh, we thank thee, O God, for a prophet. And Ezra Tapp Benson gave the opening prayer. And in the opening prayer, he said three times this momentous occasion. And Hanks is a, an astute listener, wrote that in his diary. He mentions three times this momentous day. And then they, they just had a welcome, and then they turned the time over to the president, and he wasted no time. He said, brother, and I've had a revelation. We're going to lift the ban. And you could hear a pin drop. And, and then they, of course, the hard part was next. How many of you support it? Anyway, um, to President Kimball's incredible surprise, it was unanimous in the quorums of the 70. And when that happened, they took the, the sustaining vote. Um, Paul Dunn saw something that he would remember for the rest of his life. 
he saw, after the sustaining vote, he saw President Kimball turn to N. Eldon Tanner, his able counselor, put his hand on his knee and said, Eldon, go tell the world. And then that's when Eldon, President Tanner, disappeared for a few moments, met up with the church's PR man, a guy named Heber Woolsey, and he told Woolsey what had happened. Woolsey starts to cry because he had been asked this question as the PR person for <laughs> decades. Right, I'm sure. <laughs> he was at BYU, actually, as a PR person. He was asked about it there and yeah. he transitioned to the church. So he was, I mean, bludgeoned over this. I don't use that word lightly. Woolsey was just beat up by critics over this because he was always the point man. Anyway, sure. so Woolsey goes out and he contacts the AP and UPI and he said, We're, we've lifted the ban. And this new book that's coming out next year, I start it with, I, this is the opening vignette. Um, I start out that when word gets out from the AP and UPI press, tens of thousands of people, they flood Salt Lake City with phone calls. And they overwhelm the phone lines in Salt Lake City and the entire system shut down at jams. Wow. And um, yeah, because they wanted confirmation that the news was true. And wow. let me tell you something else that's really, really interesting about this story is that, so they, they lift the ban, the quorums of the 70 are on board. Now President Kimball can rejoice because everybody has supported it. He's got the world, the weight of the world off of his shoulders. And his wife, he goes to his wife, who I didn't tell the story very well, but his wife called his secretary in around that time, that intervening week between the 12, the revelation and the seventies. And in that intervening week, she called his secretary, a guy named D. Arthur Haycock. And she said, Arthur, Spencer looks awful. What is going on? And she said, did one of the brethren commit adultery? That, <laughs> so that's that's where her that's, mind goes. That's, well, no, for good reason. For good reason. Because, because the only time she said, she said, Arthur, the only time I've ever seen Spencer this distraught and this anguished was when he was first called into the Quorum of the Twelve in 1943. And there was an apostle on trial for adultery. And that was Francis R. Lyman. Hmm. So she, she had reason. Uh, to make that connection. And Arthur Haycock, who knew, of course, what was going on, they had just lifted the ban, but her husband was sick over, you know, if the rest of the quorums would support it. She said, he said, Sister Kimball, I can assure you that none of the brethren have committed adultery. I can assure you that your husband will be fine and that you will know soon enough. <laughs> mm, right. And, you know, she wasn't very happy with that response, but she did like, the fact that he assured her that things would be fine. And so on June 9th is that day when they met with the 70s. That's when they released it to the world. And Camilla learns about it from their daughter, Olive Beth. <laughs> and when she hears about it from Olive Beth, she's, she's irritated at Spencer. And she's, how could you not tell me this? You know, I'm, I'm worried sick over you. All you had to do was tell me what was on your mind and it, it's fixed. And, you know, I would have been fine. And so according to Paul Dunn, who, whose account I have of this, uh, Spencer was telling this to the general authorities in a meeting once. And my, my, my wife really bawled me out over this because I kept it a secret <laughs> and, uh, and didn't share the details of the revelation with her. But anyway, so that's June 9th. And the, um, the word starts to trickle out. They start to baptize some of the, of course, um, early Black Latter-day Saints who are faithful. 
And the three of the apostles, they call Hubie Brown's grandson, who's a law professor at the University of Utah, a guy named Edwin Firmage. And Ed Firmage was very close to his, his grandfather Brown when grandfather Brown was a member of the first presidency. And uh, Hugh Brown died in 1975, so three years before the revelation. And I mentioned earlier in the podcast that Brown secured a promise from Kimball before he died that he would lift the ban. Yeah. So the three apostles felt inclined to call three apostles, James Faust, Gordon Hinckley, and Tom Monson. They all called Ed Firmage in rapid succession. I mean, within minutes of each other. And Ed Firmage was in, a, I guess, a class or something. He couldn't pick up, but he heard their messages and he called back. And each of them, when he called back, said that, quote, your grandfather would have loved to have seen this day. And so they felt that it was a something that they needed to do to reach out to the Brown family because they recognized that President Brown had been pushing for this, this to lift the ban for, for a long time. And I didn't share this with your listeners, but when they had a first presidency change in the spring of 1970, Hubie Brown was dropped from the first presidency because of his activism on the race issue. Wow. Yeah, they dropped him from the first presidency because he was he was a crusader. He thought it was you know, bad for the church and bad for missionary work. So anyway, the brethren recognized that, I mean, I don't know, you can make of that story what you want, them reaching out to Ed Kimball. I mean, did they recognize it was wrong? They didn't listen to him? Did they recognize he just felt badly about it? Did they just wanna sort of repair an old relationship that had frayed? I mean, I tend to take the latter position that they there was there was dissension between President Brown and some of his associates in latter years of his life, and uh, by these three apostles reaching out to Ed Firmage, um, that was their way of saying we're trying to make this right. And yeah, you know, it, it, there's something that's striking to me. <clears throat> uh, my next door neighbor is uh, my former state president and one of the best guys I know. Um, really, he's a just a excellent guy. He's a defense attorney, so I don't say that lightly. I'm a I'm a plaintiff attorney, so <laughs> I joke about that all the time. But um, <laughs> he uh, he once told me in a private conversation, he said, "I think people think that the prophet wakes up every morning and has a three hour meeting with the Savior, and he tells him everything he's going to do that day." And then, and then he goes about it, the business of the church. And that's just not how it works. Uh, some people, members of the church, are going to listen to this and they're going to say, well, wait a minute, I thought God's leading this church and blah, 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 blah. And I, you know, I don't want to go too deep into faith. But tell me your, what, you've, what you've gleaned from how the church is governed at the top from the stuff that you've read, these personal diaries, I mean, you, it sounds to me what you're saying is, is you've had access to documents that literally no one else on this subject has been able to see, including personal diaries of people agonizing over this very issue. What do you, what do you think uh, you've learned about how the church is organized and ran um, uh, from your, from your scholarship? It's a great question. It's a really good question. Well, in President Kimball's case, what I've learned is how active this revelation was. And I think that, I think Latter-day Saints have a, a mistaken view of what revelation is, at least institutional revelation. And I think it's illustrated by the 
story you just shared with your state president that Jesus just appears to him and tells him what to do that day. And obviously there's some hyperbole, you know, with your state president, I'm sure. But the sure. point is that, you know, Jesus is talking to him, God, directly, daily or weekly or something. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. What I'm saying is with institutional revelation, that it's active on the part of the person seeking the revelation, meaning that revelation is consensus in the church. It's not some thunderbolt from God. It's not um, some cosmic script telling you what to do. It's, it's a person who's led by the Holy Spirit, you know, that feeling in your heart that what you're doing is the right thing. And you institutional revelation is, it, debil, it really revolves around debate and discussion. And once the debate, the discussion occurs over a problem like the ban, they agree, I think we should probably lift the ban after lots of dis debate and discussion. And then it typically, okay, let's, let's pray about this. And then after the prayer, the president says, I feel like this is what we need to do. That's what becomes the revelation. Mm -hmm. And I think with personal revelation from either the scriptures or Joseph Smith, you know, there's a couple of familiar things in the church. One would be the still small voice, right? Second Nephi. Another one would be uh, sudden strokes of influence. That's Joseph Smith. He writes about that, that we have these, you know, sudden, sudden strokes of influence in our mind, which I think is great. Um, but that's not institutional revelation. It's, it's, uh, it's the 12 meeting together, debating and discussing an issue. And those are Hugh Brown's words, by the way, debating and discussing an issue. Those aren't my words. So Hugh Brown said that we debate, we discuss an issue, then we vote on it, then that we pray about it, and then the president says, I feel inspired to say this is what we need to do. And Brown wrote in his autobiography, Brown said, that's what becomes a revelation in the church. And that's exactly what happened to a T with the priesthood revelation, is that President McKay recognized, or President Kimball, excuse me, recognized that they needed to lift the ban there was a lot of debate and discussion for months over this issue. He was praying about it, of course, in the temple the whole time, asking for guidance, but not so much, you know, should we lift the ban? Because I really felt like he knew he needed to be lifted for the health of the church. It was about how do I convince some of the brethren who have these deep-rooted views, you know, mm -hmm. that this is in the best interest of the church. And, and then, like I said, he tried in, in March to lift it. He didn't have the support. And then in May, President Kimball writes out a revelation this is the revelation that he feels inspired to, you know, to write. He hasn't even had the prayer yet on June 1st, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, give him credit. He is determined to yeah. move the church forward. I mean, he really is a visionary in that respect. So, so that's, it's an active process. I don't know if anyone could have done what Spencer Kimball did. And meaning that he had wrestled with this for years. And he had worked on it for years, meaning that he met with the general authorities in private for years. He met with them in public, or excuse me, as a group, and he met with them individually in their offices. Mm. And so I think in the church that there's been this sort of misnomer that, you know, June 1st just said a prayer and then he learned that he had to lift the ban. That couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. He's been trying and trying and trying and... And President McKay, you could argue, he didn't like the ban either. But President McKay didn't have timing on his hands. I mean, the civil rights movement's going on. And President McKay had some very strong voices like Joseph Fielding Smith and some others that he had to deal with. But 
I, I think that President Kimball is just sort of a, in a moment of time where he could capitalize on you know, some recent events. But let me say one last thing as, as maybe we just transition a bit. Um, in, the, in the standard works is official declaration number two. That's the letter that they released to the world indicating that all worthy members would hold the priesthood. And what's interesting about that, Josh, is that it says nothing about the theological rationale for the ban. It doesn't say anything about the curse, the preexistence. And so what happens is in the 1980s and into the 1990s, black, a lot of black Latter-day Saints, but also white Latter-day Saints, they write the office of the first presidency. And I'm thinking about a black man from California named David Jackson. He writes President Hinckley and he said, I want to know, does the church still believe that black people like me are cursed and less valiant? President Hinckley writes him back through his secretary, a guy named Michael Watson, writes him back and says, dear brother Jackson, President Hinckley wants you to focus on, you know, that, that black people can go to the priesthood or go to the temple and hold the priesthood. And uh, the church isn't racist. And Brother Jackson writes back and he said, I know I can go to the temple. That's not my question. I want to know, does the church still think I'm cursed? Right. And this puts the church in a huge um, pickle because President Hinckley has moved away from all of that harsh rhetoric. But President Hinckley is an institutionalist, meaning that you don't throw your fellow core members under the bus. Mm. And so President Hinckley does not like Mormon doctrine. And, um, and there was tension with President Hinckley and Elder McConkie. I've heard this from several people who, who were in a position to know this. Anyway, he didn't like Mormon doctrine at all, which is one of the most authoritative books detailing the church's race teachings. That, and there's another book called The, the Way to Perfection that was published earlier. Anyway, um, but Elder, President Hinckley didn't want to get in the business of, of repudiating, you know, earlier leaders and their teachings. So he's trying to, let's, let's just go forward, not look backward. Right. People like David Jackson, they're not happy with that at all for two reasons. Number one, just out of self-respect, I want to know if the church teaches this still or believes it. And secondly, I'm still being told in my core meetings at church that, you know, that I am cursed, but don't worry, God lifted it in 1978. <laughs> and Jackson's like, I'm offended by this, that anyone would think I'm cursed. Right. My, my skin is a gift from God, just like you, white person or brown person, feel that your skin's a gift from God. My skin's no different. And so the brethren are in this really, really tight spot. And uh, David Jackson, so they, they, they exchange letters, and Jackson's not getting anywhere, right? He's really frustrated. He's a convert to the church in 1990. Um, he was a Baptist prior to that. His wife and two, his wife and son, I think. His other son didn't join, but anyway, his wife and son joined. And anyway, he didn't understand a couple of things that probably in Mormon culture, it's not, you know, typical protocol to write the church president and to call him on the carpet like this, but he did. But he went one step further. He wrote a third manifesto that he essentially demanded President Hinckley introduce at general conference and then canonize it into the standard works so the first manifesto is the ones the lifting of the ban and the third one's repudiating racism including mormon doctrine hmm. 
And, you know, he's done this within his first five years of being a member. <laughs> right. <laughs> and when I interviewed him, rest his soul, he's, he's now passed on. But when I interviewed him, you know, <laughs> he could sense that I was a little, you know, I was interested in the story. And he sent me tons of documents, including all these letters I just quoted from with Michael Watcher and others. And anyway, um, but he, he said, I couldn't understand why he wouldn't, you know, read the manifesto over general conference. And, uh, you know, it's the right thing to do. And I said, David, that's not how the church works. Yeah. So you or me, we don't write declarations for the church president to announce as a revelation. It doesn't work that way. Right. And so anyway, it was just kind of interesting, you know, as a new convert and some of his ideas. So. Um, there's a did, lot did he stay? Did he stay a member throughout the rest of his life? Is that no, or did, no, no, he, he was so in the '90s? I go through. There's a lot of details I can't get into in this short podcast. In my my book uh, that's coming out, I talk about this in more detail. There's a lot more to the backstory here. They work with a general authority to help get President Hinckley to do it too. So mm-hmm. anyway, um, so President Hinckley refuses to to explicitly re- repudiate Mormon doctrine publicly. He refuses to do it. And privately, he's just saying that we're not racist, but that's not satisfying David Jackson and, and other black members. Mm-hmm. Because when Hinckley says we're not racist, but yet they're still going to church and being told that they're cursed and that they were less valiant, they're still hearing all the racist teachings. And so I'll make this uh, an end point to the story. So this goes on for a long time, and President Hinckley, his office, I mean, these complaints everywhere. And then you get social media, of course, in the first decade of the 21st century, where the saints take to social media to talk about their grievances with race and, you know, all of this. And they start to do podcasts. Right. Black Latter-day Saints are talking about how, you know, I went to the temple last week, and the black woman, and um, at the veil, a white uh, member told, called me the N-word. You know, you're getting stuff like this out on social mm. media. Right, right. And so anyway, um, one of my friends, Darius Gray, who was an early member of the Genesis group, and he's been the church's sort of point man on race for a lot of years. And Darius had been telling, been behind the scenes, I don't think he'd mind me sharing this with you. He had been working behind the scenes for a lot of years to do something about Mormon doctrine and racism. And so when he was president of the Genesis group in the late 90s, um, he got calls from Black Latter-day Saints all over the country complaining about, you know, the folklore or the racist stuff that was still being circulated in their wards and branches. So he went to President Hinckley and he told him, this is what's going on. We've got to do something about it. And Virginia Pierce, President Hinckley's daughter, uh, the story goes that she went to her her father's house one day and she saw him pacing his living room floor in disgust. And she said, you know, dad, what's wrong? And president Hinckley said to his daughter, Darius told me some things that are deeply disturbing. And what Darius told president Hinckley was, you know, that all of this, these racial teachings were still being taught in the 1990s. So president Hinckley was deeply disturbed by this. He, um, Darius, and there's some other things too, but that conversation with Darius and some other Latter-day Saints became became the basis of his talk in 2006 in which he denounces racism. Mm. And I don't know, you you might be too young to know that, but it's a it's in my book, part of it. 
And it's oh, I remember. Time. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, it's the first time that a church leader denounces anti-black racism, basically. Mm -hmm. And that's the context of it. And I want to finish the story here. Is so, but even in this this talk, President Hinckley in general conference in 2006, I mean it's a great talk, but it still doesn't denounce Mormon doctrine. It doesn't denounce um, some specific things, but it does denounce racism very clearly and unmistakably. And to me, this is one of President Hinckley's finest hours as church president. That and reaching out to the black community to repair old relationships. But anyway, um, so we still have these, we don't have it at repudiation of, of the racism stuff. And, and in 2012, when Mitt Romney is running for the presidency, um, I'm sure you've heard of this, Josh, that a BYU religion professor um, gave an interview with the Washington Post. Yep. <laughs> and um, yeah. Rough, yeah. rough ride. <laughs> <laughs> his, name is, his name is Randy Bott, and the, the person who interviewed him was, um, I interviewed him for my book, and his name is Jason Horowitz. Horowitz went to BYU to just do a story about the church in BYU. They, he knew that Mitt Romney went to BYU. That's all it was. And he went over to the religion department, and he, Horowitz started knocking on doors just to talk to any religion person about the church and you know Mitt Romney and all that had nothing to do with race or anything. It was just kind of a broad story. Well, anyway, the first several uh, doors that he that he knocked on, they opened the door and they just said, you know, I can't talk to you because you haven't been cleared by the institution. There's a process by which we have to follow to interview with you, and you haven't gone through that process. So I sorry, I can't help you. Well, anyway, he gets to Randy Bott's door and knocks on the door and and I've uh, never met Randy Bott, but um, he's a by all accounts, people that I know who know him, he's gregarious, he's likable. Anyway, he opens up and tells Horowitz to come on in. And they started talking, you know, just casually. And uh, Horowitz was taking notes down on things that, that Bot was telling him about the church. And all of a sudden, the race stuff just came up. And uh, at first, Bot was a little uncomfortable, according to Horowitz. But then he just opened up, talked about black people not having the priesthood because they were cursed, they were from a less favored lineage, that you wouldn't give the priesthood to a black person. It'd be like giving the keys up to a little child to drive a car. I mean, the metaphor was horrible, right? A kid right. in a car. Yeah. And the metaphor, of course, was that black people like kid children, that they're not ready for it. Right. Anyway, it just completely explodes. And Horowitz recognizes right away. He's like, oh, wow, I got a story here. And so that wasn't the whole story, the race, but that was certainly part of it. And so it published the next day. And the church is just like, I mean, they're upset. Leaders are upset because this is bad publicity. Mitt Romney's running. And they were already worried about you know negative perceptions of the church regarding polygamy and race. So anyway, um, Randy Bott doesn't make it worse or makes it worse. And so about a little over a year later, the church had released the, the, one of the first gospel topics essays they had been working on for a long time to deal with controversial issues in Mormon history. And it's not coincidental that they released the race and the priesthood one first, or at least among the earliest. Might be the, I think it was like the second one. With December of 2013, 
they um, released it. The bot interview was February 2012. So they've been working on it and they released it on in December 2013. It's the first time in church history where in the statement where the church denounces all of these old teachings by name. The stuff that Darius Gray, the stuff that David Jackson and others had been pressing the brethren to do, this statement now does it. It calls out the curse. It says the interracial marriage is not a sin. It says that, you name it, it says it. And it's, um, the brethren were worried that as long as those, those former teachings are still circulating, which is to say they hadn't been repudiated, that people like Randy Bott will continue to teach them thinking that they're okay to teach. Right. When the truth is that, that Bott never got the memo that, you know, we're, we're just kind of quietly moving away from this stuff. Sure. And I don't, I'm not here to throw Bott under a bus. I would never want to do that because in, in his, um, in his defense, not that I need to defend him, but in his defense, he just thought he was just teaching what the church had always taught. Sure. And of course, the church with President Hinckley and others were trying to go quietly in a new direction without repudiating Elder McConkie and others. But in this 2013 statement, it's unmistakable. They're repudiating all of these old teachings that were once given to sustain the ban. And what I've always told Latter-day Saint groups that I work with or, or talk to is that if you've got a, you know, a Latter-day Saint at church and, or anywhere, and he, he says something about the curse or God lifted the curse or something. Now you have a statement where you can hold it up and say, you know, the church no longer teaches that. It's on the church's website. Go have a look. Right. So it really is something that's authoritative that anyone in the church can appeal to to combat racist thought. You know, the interesting thing about that, and I shared this story with you off air. <clears throat> I remember in the mid 2000s, um, there were in our warden stake here in the Sacramento area, two uh, African-American brothers who were serving in leadership positions. They uh, were excellent members of the church um, and were very strong. In fact, one of them came from, I believe it was Ghana. Um, He was one of the first um, members of the church in Ghana. Uh, So very faithful, great member. And when they were called to leadership positions, a, an anonymous letter was written to, um, I, don't, I don't remember if it was the bishop or the stake president, uh, repudiating their calls to leadership because of some of these old, these old doctrines. And this is before that 2013 essay that came out. So the thing that's that's so troubling about this, and this is this is something that I think is really interesting and why I was so interested in having this conversation with you was that um, I have found when, you know, as an active member of the church, when, uh, and, and it go, depends on what ward you go to, what day you're there, who's in attendance, you know, um, we don't, the church sometimes doesn't do enough to clear up some of these things. And it could very well be that the people at the top don't always know exactly what's going on at the down. The, the church is huge now. It's 13, 14, 15 million members, you know, as, as we're going through you know, they don't know what's going on on the ground level necessarily all the time. And and I've heard some of these teachings still kind of taught or people theorizing as to why certain, 
you know, doctrines happened, you know, oh, well, you know, maybe the world wasn't ready for this or, you know, something of that nature. You, That's what I hear often. And the fact is, is that we have all the documents and you're showing now, you know, I think it's important to know these things and then own it and move on from it. You know, I mean, um, and, and that is something, you know, I don't want to be critical of the church that I love either, but I think that the church could do a, a lot better job of acknowledging some of the warts, you know, um, because yeah, like it's, it's, it, for some reason, it seems the church tends to have a hard time uh, acknowledging when things get, went wrong. You know, I was talking to a mission president uh, recently. He called me is a friend of mine. And so he served in the South as a mission president. And um his father was a general authority for a lot of years. He's got deep stock in the church. And he, he, we developed a friendship over some things he read that I wrote over the years. Anyway, um, so he called me and he said, he said, man, I got to ask you a question. And I said, shoot. And he said, um, I'm getting a lot of my former missionaries. So now he's off his mission. And I, I'm just as busy now off my mission as I was when I was their president. They just, you know, they're, they're, they're into their twenties. Now they have problems with the church. They have, you know, and they, they still reach out to, for counsel. And so now that I'm retired, I, I counsel them. I spend a lot of time counseling them. So my question for you is, do you think the Brigham Young was a racist? <laughs> Apparently racism comes up with his missionaries. And I said to him, I said, that the person who instituted the ban lived, did it in 1852, when there were 4 million African slaves. Right. What do you think? Right. right. And I told him, I said, of course he's a racist. My goodness, show me, you know, there are some people in the 19th century who aren't racist. They, they believe in racial equality truly, but they're few and far between. Mm -hmm. Why would a church leader be exceptional to that rule? Sure. And even the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln, did not think black and white people were equal. Mm -hmm. and, and the litmus test, in my view, is always interracial marriage. You know, you can argue that the slaves ought not to be slaves anymore, like Lincoln. But do you want a slave to marry your son or your daughter? Right. right. And he would have told you no. Right. So anyway, um, and there are very few people who believe in that kind of racial equality. So I said, why would Brigham Young be an exception to this rule? Why would any other Joseph Fielding Smith, a man that I... I really find interesting. He uh, was born in 1876, just after the American Civil War. And um, never met a black person in his life until he became an adult and moved out of Salt Lake City a little bit. Of course he's racist. They don't think that black people are, are equal. So that's not the real issue here. I think the real issue ought to be that you, you contextualize it and you say, you know, unfortunately the, the church, some of the leaders had racist views and it's regrettable that happened, but it happened. They were men of their time. And what's important today is that the church no longer accepts those views. And here's that race and priesthood essay, you know, that I mentioned a minute ago that you can use as an example. I think people are really, uh, they're welcoming of change. Mm -hmm. And where you get into trouble, I told the mission president, I said, you're gonna get into trouble with your missionaries when you try to defend Brigham Young as not being a racist because mm -hmm. There are things all over the internet where you can find the journal of discourses and any number of things he said about um, African-Americans in two seconds. And for you to try to spin that into some positive way, that won't bode well for you. 
So acknowledge the racism, contextualize it, and then let your missionaries know that this is no longer what the church teaches. And that's why that 2013 statement is so remarkable. It's because it does give you a way to say, now the church has evolved. And yeah, you know, and it, the thing that's so interesting, I, I don't, sometimes, this is more of a rhetorical conversation or, or whatnot. Sometimes I wonder if people truly believe in modern day revelation. And, and what I mean by that is, is that the whole concept of modern day revelation is that the doctrines, the policies, whatever you want to call them, they change based on the needs of the people at the time. If you look even back in the Old Testament, I mean, you know, the doctrine, the policies changed over time. Jesus changed the entire religion when he came. I mean, it was a completely different religion. And over time, the word of wisdom's changed. Tithing has changed. There's lots of doctrines that have changed over time. And if you truly believe in modern day revelation, you follow the prophet of today because they're the prophet for your time. You don't follow necessarily. I mean, you, you, you follow Brigham Young like you follow Samuel and, you know, who I'm sure had a lot of, you know, questionable things to say about a lot of different people who weren't Jews, <laughs> you know, I mean, so, you know, it, it's, it's interesting when you when you hear that and what also it's, it tends to sometimes be a personal, you know, this is me just kind of having a personal gripe with church culture, is that sometimes you have people who they just don't believe the change. Oh, it was just a societal, political thing. And uh, that's hard to root out. You know, it, it takes a generation or two. Um and so, uh, so, so tell us now, okay, so we have the, what it sounds like for me, and this is, this is what I found so fascinating in a broad stroke. It really wasn't doctrine until 1949. I mean, it was a practice and a policy. It was kind of, but nobody really quite knew where it came from. They just knew it kind of started around Brigham Young. Not sure the reasons why there were theories out there. They caught no, a fight. No, hold on a sec. They assumed Joseph Smith. Uh-huh. Right. Right. And I read in your book about the conversation between two guys in the Southern States mission and all this different stuff where they thought maybe Joseph Smith had said it, but nobody could verify it. And people thought it was kind of fishy. And then this happens in 1949. So a hundred years after the church is established, it officially becomes doctrine. And then you have the 69 statement, which kind of walks it back a little bit. Well, we believe it, but not quite that way. And then the bands lifted in 78. And then all those old teachings that were not even doctrine until 49 get repudiated in 2013. Does that sound about right? Yeah. What, what's really interesting, yes. And so the, a couple of things. The church has only said three things on race in the church's history. So the 49 statement, the 69 statement, and then the 2013 statement. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, what you get is just private letters to Latter-day Saints about the church's race teachings from the first presidency. But... What's interesting is we see an evolution about how the church talks about publicly the ban. So, for example, you know, in the 19th century, it was about black people being cursed. Protestants had taught that. And of course, the early leaders of the church came from Protestant backgrounds. And so they brought that baggage with them into the Latter-day Saint tradition. And the prophet uh, Joseph Smith certainly was not as um, harsh towards black people as Brigham Young, but it, you really can't say that he was racially enlightened because he still referred to black people as the sons of Cain too. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, he certainly um, 
reached out to black people more than Brigham Young did and allowed a black woman to live in his house when she needed help with uh, a place to live. And so the prophet and his wife, Emma, allowed her to work and be a servant in the house, just like a housemaid, I guess you'd say. Anyway, um, and then Elijah Abel held the priesthood during Joseph Smith's day and age. And there were some other brethren who held the priesthood. And anyway, so the curses part there early on and then after the American Civil War, as I mentioned earlier, there's a second rationale. This is a pre-existent thing. And so black people did something in the pre-existence that warranted that curse. So these two ideas now are paralleling each other into the 20th century. And by the civil rights movement, which has a tremendous effect on the church. I can't emphasize how much the civil rights movement affects the, the leaders in Salt Lake. Anyway, in the, in the 1960s, uh, the first presidency, April of 1968, they have a first presidency meeting and they say in this meeting, let's not talk about the cursed and the less valiant stuff anymore. People don't understand it. It's hard to explain. Anything that we say about the Negro has to be, quote, clear, positive and brief. Hmm. So they move away from, you know, the, the, at least publicly. And then in 1969, this other statement that you, you mentioned it's the first time that they claim to not know why the ban existed. Uh -huh. And which is interesting because Mormon doctrine, he knows why the ban existed. Joseph sure. Fielding Smith in his writings, he knows why the ban existed. Sure. But now they're taking a new line and it's, let's be frank about this. It's a public relations line. That's all it is. Sure. And so we don't know why the, the ban existed. <clears throat> but that, that line Josh, come, it stays in the, the church lexicon well into the first decade of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. There are BYU professors that I had when I was there, you know, who said that we don't know why the ban existed. And I always found that puzzling because right. the church has answers for a lot of things. And you've just denied millions and millions of people their vital temple ordinances, and but you don't know why. I mean, you know, sure. anyway, that's me being... I don't want to be flippant, but that's that bothered me when I heard that. But that was a church line. And for a short period in the early 21st century, it then moved to folklore. That you know, mm -hmm. Mormon racial teachings are folklore, like the curse and all of that. And that's problematic too, because of that 49 statement that calls it doctrine. Mm -hmm. And it's also problematic because the church's best-selling book of the 20th century with the word doctrine in the title, you know, Mormon doctrine. <laughs> right. <you> know, <laughs> Everybody has a copy. I have my grandpa's old copy, yeah. <laughs> Right, right. And now we've got some high church leaders calling it folklore, and that's problematic because it wasn't folklore. But again, as a, this is what I guess as a scholar that, that I would do is I have to make sense of this. Why are they calling this folklore? The people calling it folklore, they know it's not folklore. They know it was taught as doctrine. And I, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you this, and I'm, I'm sensitive to this position, which is that some of the leaders are, um, they know it's not folklore, but they're trying to be respectful of their colleagues. And if sure. you call it folklore, it allows you to distance yourself, distance yourself from an uncomfortable teaching. Sure. So they try the folklore line. And of course, in the age of social media and the internet, and all that, oh man, there were critics galore who just piled on that one. Sure. And um, yeah, they weren't having it. So that line didn't stick around very long. And and then by, of course, full swing, we get to 2013. And What's really interesting, I'm going to just say something very specific for a moment. If you read the 2013 document, there was a lot of there's a lot of ambiguity in the document, meaning that what does it say about the provenance of the ban? 
Was it, did God lead to this band, inspire Young to do it? Or was this just something that happened because of the racist milieu of Young today? In other words, did the band occur because of racism? And the people that wrote the, the early um, draft of this, they wanted to convey this idea that it was just born out of 19th century American racism. Mm-hmm. Once again, you know, not hard to believe because of the time that we lived in with you know, 4 million Africans enslaved. But some of the leaders didn't want that. And there was, there was some, there was some um, uh, differences of, of opinion about what should go forward. And my brother, who's got, I don't know, four graduate degrees, he called me up one day and he said, I told him, I said, um, this document acknowledges that the ban was the result of racism. And my brother said, I read it. I don't see that. Yeah. And again, four graduate degrees. So, you know, he can read. (laughs) And I said, well, I guess I have a little bit of an advantage over you because I know the people that wrote it and the intent behind it. And I walked him through it. And my brother said, Oh, I guess I could see that now. Sure. The point is that that story is I shouldn't have to walk my brother through it. Sure. Yeah, it should be clear. Yeah. It, it's yeah. If I, I've always said this sort of flippantly to some friends in private that if this were in my research seminar in the university, <laughs> I would have given it a poor grade because it's just bad writing. Yeah. But in fairness to the wonderful people who wrote it, some of whom are my friends, it wasn't their bad. It wasn't. They're not bad writers. It just, there were too many people with input that really obfuscated the meaning. And I know some of the people who, uh, some of the brethren who, they just didn't want to go that far and say that it was racism. Mm. So that's why it's ambiguous. It's ambiguous by design. Mm. And You know what it reminds me of? I, I, I heard a story recently, you know, I'm an, I'm an attorney and we do mediations and often uh, old judges, um, they retire and they become mediators. And in this mediation, a judge was uh, talking to somebody with a case with a very, very novel issue. And the attorney who had it said, okay, judge, you're on the bench. What would you do with this issue? And he said, I'd probably let it all in, even though I don't necessarily think it's all right, because judges are often are more often overturned by keeping things out than keeping thing in, keeping mm-hmm. things in. Right. Um, And so sometimes what you remind me of when you say they don't want to criticize their predecessors, it kind of sounds like the same thing. Right. That you got a judge here who who is worried about being overturned. Right. Worried about, you know, I've heard this often also with judges, too. They don't want to you know, they heard another judge made a ruling that they don't agree with. They'll never criticize them over it because, you know, they don't want to be criticized either. You know, it's. And when you have a church, you know, this is another thing that I think is I, I'm I'm actually glad there's a couple of things I'd say about this that I'm glad I'm happy about. And that is for in my opinion, for too long. Well, let me put it this way. Patrick came on. Patrick Mason came on and he said something that we often use the footnote of Declaration One where Wilford Woodruff says that the, the God would never allow the prophet to lead the church astray as some sort of a comment on prophetic and fallacy. And he's like, that's actually not true. That's a comment on God leading the church, not that prophets are infallible. The problem has been is that it for a very long time has been taught as prophets are infallible, which is just not true because they're human. They make mistakes too. I think it's great that things like this are kind of highlighting that fact 
that there really is, I think for me, because it shows me that, hey, if prophets can make mistakes, I ain't so bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm very far from perfect. And if, you know, they're, they're struggling with things just like every one of us, they've got things going on. And it sounds like what you're seeing is you're seeing that in your writings or, or the, or the, the readings. Yeah, but I would say, I would say, Josh, um, it's easy for me and for the two of us to say, you know, they're in, the church doesn't believe in infallibility. They're prophets, they're human, they make mistakes. And I think that any one of them of the 12, I'm going to go on a limb and say this, that they'd probably, they would agree with us, right? We're, we're fallible. We make mistakes. The problem with pointing out these mistakes, especially the band one, there's a lot at stake writing on this 19th century idea of, was it born out of racism or was God behind it? And this isn't just some meaningless theolo theological quibble that, you know, Harris and Edlow are having on a Sunday night. It, it has stakes. Right. And, you know, like you pointed out, there have been given different reasons. People weren't ready for it. Or they, some people appeal to the Bible just as Jesus gave the gospel to certain groups, excluded others. You know, all of that stuff, which I never, I'm not comfortable with because I think it's clear where I stand on this, according to the records. They're just born out of racism. But what's at stake here is two things. One is Elder Packer, the late Elder Packer, said that doctrines never change. That's true. And... Not all the brethren agree with him on that, but he said that repeatedly throughout his ministry. And so I think that's at stake. And the second thing at stake is a contemporary thing that I know is gripping to today's leaders. If they were wrong about the ban, then they're also wrong about LBGTQ. I was going to ask you about that, actually. <laughs> that's, that's the parallel that I, yeah. think, I think some of the brethren feel like they would be opening themselves up to criticism if they admitted fallibility on the priesthood issue because that's not a small issue well i find that funny because when you say they're going to open themselves up to criticism on that i'm like you mean more <laughs> you know i mean like you know right now i mean i would say i look i'm from california right i lived here during proposition eight I was actually in law school during Proposition 8, and the largest Lambda fraternity, which is the legal fraternity for LGBTQ people, is it at my law school. And I'm one of like eight Mormons at this law school, at McGeorge Law School. So I, I was very deeply entrenched in the legal arguments of this. I, and I was not so, and here in California, especially where it was like the epicenter for all of the church's lgbtq issues that is when you, know, you talk about friends that have had a faith crisis is that's one of the biggest issues everyone here i mean especially here there's there's a large contingent of lgbtq youth you know things of that nature and so everybody's got somebody they know who identifies as gay transgender pansexual all the different lgbt uh you know uh, statuses so yeah i mean maybe it's different for me here but i mean here it's largely criticized um and i found that it's, it's what i also find interesting about that and this is kind of a tangent we're going on because i do want to wrap the wrap up some where we're at contemporary uh, contem contemporarily on on the race issue but it's amazing how fast the culture has changed this went way faster than 
you know, the uh, the civil rights movement and things of that nature. I mean, Patrick commented on that in his podcast where he said, you know, never has a cultural shift moved so quickly. It was just in 2008 when the most liberal, one of the most liberal states in the union banned gay marriage. That was 15 years ago, you know, and here we are. And so, yeah, I could see that. Do you have any, um, you, you seem to know a lot of the players here. Um, and, and you've talked a lot about the the seeming like clash between different views on race. Do you know if those types of same things are going on in the quorum on the LGBT issues right now? Yes. Yes. Hmm. So do you remember the policy that came out in, was it November of 17, I think? I know it well about the about the kid the the kids of of gay parents, right? Yeah, yeah, there's a whole backstory to that boy that's probably can't get into tonight. But anyway, um, so it came out in the fall of 2017, and then it got reversed. What was it? A year and a half later. A year yeah. and a half later. I mean, think about that. Yeah, you know, ordinary. You know, I was it. I was. Uh, you know, here's another anecdote. I was in a, I was in a bishopric when that when that happened, and we had a good, strong, lifelong member of the church who had a a, um, a family member close to him who was gay, still coming to church, still doing these things. That that family member had a kid. Soon as that came out, gone. That was it. That his grandkids couldn't get back. I mean, that was a struggle for him. That happened. You know, theologically, there are all kinds of issues with this, right? Including the article of faith that people will be, you know, punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression, right? Or the sins right. of the fathers. Sure. And uh, that's the same argument that black people made too, by the way, with the pre-existent thing. Right. Anyway, um, so uh, so is that fall of 2017 it comes out, and then in January of 2018, in a devotional at BYU Hawaii, President Nelson calls it a revelation just like he likens into the priesthood revelation which is extraordinary right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there is um the brethren some of them didn't support it just going to be frank and there were a lot of latter-day saints who were leaving the church ripping up their temple recommends i mean mass exoduses mm -hmm. and so it's not a surprise that it was reversed a short time later, which is, again, the beauty of, I think, Mormon theology is our ongoing revelation. You can change things, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but the church, to suggest that the church operates in a vacuum, like I often hear from people in the church, just like, oh, God just appeared to him. I'm like, you know, yeah, right. there's, you know, it's like a law, right? There's a reason why that law is in place. Somebody just didn't think to pass a law for no reason. The mm -hmm. law, they passed a law because there's a problem with something and they needed a law sure. to regulate, right? Yeah. And they needed, they needed an apparatus to enforce it. And it's the same thing here is that the brethren are very, very careful about um, criticisms and especially if the criticisms are vocal and substantial. It's one thing to have, you know, a person criticizing the church in the corner, and you can just kind of go like that to them and say, oh, that's just so-and-so's beef about something. Sure. But it's quite another to get a lot of people um, and to 
to get them involved and all of that. And so that's what's going on here. And let me let me just say one last thing. I'll bring it back to the black issue, race issue. But then when there were there were three openings in the quorum of the twelve in the spring and summer of 2015, and one of the leaders of the Genesis Group was it at Home Depot or Lowe's. I think it was Lowe's. It was at Lowe's in Utah during that time. And of course, they didn't announce those replacements until the fall, I think, of 28, the fall of 2015. They were going to announce the replacements to L. Tom Perry, Richard Scott, and I think Boyd Packer. Anyway, this black member, Genesis Group president, he saw Jeffrey R. Holland, Elder Holland, at Lowe's on a Saturday. And the black brother went right over to Elder Holland and he said, when are we going to have a black apostle? I mean, precisely the sort of thing Elder Holland wants to hear on a Saturday when he's in his <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, just that blunt, you know? Yeah. It kind of reminded me of David Jackson, you know, something David Jackson would have said. But anyway, um, <laughs> Elder Holland, to his credit, didn't give him a nonsensical answer. He just looked at the brother and he said, when there are more black Latter-day Saints in the church, we'll consider it. Yeah. And... I thought, huh, that's a, that's a pretty good response. And that's consistent with what I know, how these things work. Mm -hmm. That, you know, when people complain, when they say there's a problem, can you help fix it, brethren? Then that's when you start to see, you know, some action. It may not be the action you want necessarily, but you do see action. And I, 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 now I don't have any privileged sources on this, so let's not be clear on this, but with the whole LBGTQ stuff at, say, BYU the last few years, you know, Elder Holland, I think, and others have said very publicly, look, we've talked about what we can do for LBGTQ members. And he said, basically, we've gone as far as we can go. And what, what that means is we're supporting civil unions. Mm -hmm. We're not going to allow, you know, our gay brothers and sisters to be sealed in temples anytime soon. But the church is not going to oppose civil unions for gay people. But what's interesting is they've sort of drawn the line at that. That's about as far as they want to go because at BYU, they won't allow, you know, gay students to hold hands. The litmus test was you got to live a lot of chastity. And mm -hmm. presumably that meant like heterosexual students, right? Right. Heterosexual students can hug and kiss and hold hands, but they can't, you know, do more than that. But yet uh, blacks or gay students can't even hug and kiss and hold hands. Right. And so they've drawn a line there in terms of what they'll allow and permit. And it's, it's really, in my opinion, it's, it's, a, it's too bad because what happens is when you do that, you're telling a, a gay Latter-day Saint that we're expecting you to live a life of, you know, celibacy. Yeah. And you <clears throat> find a home in the church that way. Yeah. If you're expected to essentially live life on your own and single. And so it's it's no surprise that, you know, I don't have any data on this that, that, that tips tongue, but it's no surprise that gay Latter-day Saints don't stay in the church. Yeah. And and the struggle. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, I, I mentioned off air the the um, podcast I did with Sonny Smith, who's a, you know, a transgendered uh, member of the church active and, um, you know, not quite the same, but having to make a choice between your gender identity and your spiritual identity is, is a rough choice. And and on top of that, I mean, but that's even different than, say, you know, your your sexuality, where 
you know, you're, you're essentially asking people to, in a church built around family and a church built around ceilings and having loads of children, more than the average person, and uh, you're seeing all these families and everyone's getting up bearing testimonies about how grateful they are for their spouse, that there's somebody there that you are basically saying, if you want to be a righteous member of the church for the rest of your life, you are never going to have any of that. And that is a rough, I couldn't imagine it. I couldn't imagine it. And uh, something I thought about a lot. That's a, that's a really, that's a tough position, you know, and it's not quite tenable. It'd be no wonder. Right. And and you got to think if you believe in an atonement and a perfect judge, that that's going to be taken into account. Um, going into the, uh, back to the race issue, tell us now. So 2013, there's been almost 10, there's, we're almost 10 years out now from that, you know, nine and nine in a month, I guess. Um, how would you, how would you couch, uh, contemporary, um, you know, contemporary thoughts on race and how, how the church is doing with that? I mean, um, yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe we should end tonight on, on this, this stream. <laughs> Um, cause I think it's, I don't know if you, you knew what a loaded question that is, um, <laughs> but it's really, it's an important question. Uh-huh. So I'm going to say two, two, um, preparatory comments. And then I'm going to say something big. The two okay. preparatory comments would be the church doesn't just doesn't want to deal with race. They don't, doesn't, they don't want to talk about it at church. They don't want to, um, you know, we, we still see microaggressions pop up because there's no sensitivity training. I mean, Latter-day Saints need to be told, basically, you shouldn't say this, this, mm-hmm. this, this, and this. Don't teach that, don't say it. But instead, what, what, what you end up getting is, you know, don't be a racist. The problem is most of the people who are told, you know, over the pulpit and general conference or wherever, don't be a racist, they don't think they're racist. Right, right, exactly. You're not, it, it, you're not it, connecting it, with them. So President Nelson... Yeah, I mean, President Elton or President Oaks, they gave these great talks, you know, a couple of years ago in the in the um, aftermath of George Floyd's death. Uh, you know, don't be a racist. Well, that doesn't resonate with Latter-day Saints because they don't recognize what that looks like. And so that leads me to the, the comment, the bigger comment, which is this. I get asked this a lot. You know, where is the church of race today? The, the curse of Cain stuff and the less valiant stuff, it's still out there, but it's on the margins. And we've got data for this too. Younger generation, I'm a little bit older than you, Josh, but a younger generation of, of Latter-day Saints, millennials, I suppose, and maybe younger, um, they didn't grow up with this stuff by and large. Mm-hmm. And so they did a, a survey a few years ago and half these younger Latter-day Saints in their 20s and 30s had no idea about this curse stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is a good thing, right? I guess. Um, anyway, so the curse and, and less valiance and all the old hard stuff, that's sort of on the margins with an older generation of Latter-day Saints. The issue today that plagues the church is right-wing extremism, mm. where members of the church who, I think the latest, the latest poll I saw, 68% of of Latter-day Saints in the United States identify with the Republican Party, 68%. That's it? (laughs) Well, Utah's even higher, right? Yeah. And so anyway, um, and then there was, uh, gosh, don't quote me on the numbers, but I think in the 70s, when they did a poll shortly after January 6th, the insurrection, there was an alarming poll 
it was something like 72% of Latter-day Saints supported the insurrection. And I think second only to evangelicals or something. Right. And anyway, so you look at right-wing extremism and how they use race as a cudgel to divide people. That's the kind of racism that you see today in the church. And sometimes it's subtle when someone says, you know, Black Lives Matter, and the retort is all lives matter, mm-hmm. which, is a, which is a very subtle racist statement in that it shows a profound lack of um, awareness of what Black lives mean, that it's mm-hmm. Black uh, people who are being uh, targeted by law enforcement. And so when you say that all lives matter, it, white people are not being brutalized by law, some law enforcement like black people. So you're not really engaged in that uh, important lesson of empathy. Anyway, so there's that. And then there's this, you know, talking points from the Republican Party in which, you know, all of these racist stereotypes that black people are on welfare and black people, black men can't be good fathers or good husbands. And, you know, all of this longstanding racism and the church did a handbook revision a couple of years ago. And it's the first time in this revision that they warn Latter-day Saints not to be involved with institutions that promote conspiracy theories or mm-hmm. that divide and inflame people. Mm-hmm. Now, they didn't put the Republican Party there. They didn't right. put anyone on there. But sure. you know darn well they're talking about this sort of thing. And, and some of the people behind it, of course, like some of the brethren are, I guess, like Dallin Oaks is a moderate Republican. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's not like he's some, you know, left-wing, you know, he's not like Hugh Brown who identified as a liberal Democrat. Sure. But anyway, um, and I talked to some people in the know who, uh, I, that's all I could probably tell you. But that right-wing extremism is harming the church. And the church leaders that I know of, um, they're well aware of that. And But you're back to a another issue of not wanting to repudiate one of your own. And the person sure. who, frankly, made his living doing this was Elder Benson, right? Yeah, I was just saying that. It was like, we were talking off air, and I, I don't think we'll have enough time tonight to go through. I want I want to go just as deep into that into that topic with you we'll have to have you come back soon and yeah. talk about that book because it's um but i want to finish the book before we before we do yeah, yeah. but yeah. um but i i agree you know i i would say if i were gonna identify you know i don't identify with anybody anymore everybody seems to hate me in politics but but um but yeah you know it, it's it's interesting you bring that up because we have a a former president of the church who was an ultra conservative involved in anti-communism and McCarthyism and involved in those things who talked often using language that promoted conspiracy like Gadiant and robbers and, and things like that from the, from the book of Mormon. And so it's interesting to hear now um, that the quorum of the 12 is recognizing the damage that that, that that can do. Right. And we're, and we're seeing documentaries now on, you know, on uh, on that come up with uh, under the banner of heaven and things of the, the book that came out and the movie and the show that came out, which I wasn't a big fan of the show, but anyway, it was <clears throat> interesting. Um, and and so you think the racism comes that comes out of that like a similar thing? Because one thing that it, that's 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 fascinating to me about you, you brought up brought Black Lives Matter, and I remember having I have a couple of very ultra conservative friends. 
on these issues and, and I would talk to them and, and I, I just remember one time saying to one of them, I just threw my hands in the air and I was like, I've given you statistical evidence. I've given you anecdotal evidence. What do I have to show you to believe that it's happening? Do you have to see an unarmed black man get shot before you, you know, you believe it? And the other thing that I think is funny is I remember having a conversation with a really good friend of mine on this very issue about the, the topic of the curse, the, the, you know, of a curse or less valiant in the preexistence. And so there was a, you know, there's a curse of darkness on the skin. And I go, you're basically saying like that that's a racist statement, right? That's a, and they go, that, no, it's not. It's the very epitome of racism. <laughs> it's, it's based on skin color and nothing else, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's exactly racism. I'm not saying you may believe that, that God is racist. You know what I mean? But do you believe that God is, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's, it's when you put it like that, because if you're logical about it, the thing that I think is so funny about some of these things is, uh, and this may be just my attorney brain, but often I think I, I'm surprised at the mental gymnastics some people will go to, to not be wrong. And, uh, and there's a natural tendency in the church to, defend even in defensible positions and um we really got to get away from that you know and, and i appreciate you coming on and sharing this um what, what do you just to kind of put a spearhead of wrap around this i mean this is if, if matthew harris was in the quorum of the 12 apostles it was running, never happened <laughs> I know. the premise is flawed me, me but like what do you see needing to happen to kind of root, I mean, we're in 2023. So what, what are some things that we need, that need to happen to kind of root this out? You've mentioned already, um, and I've heard you hear this on another, on other podcasts, you mentioned Gordon B. Hinckley really did a lot to kind of reach out to like, I know he reached out to the NAACP, the Wyoming 14, like some of these groups to kind of almost, I don't know if it would be necessarily to say to atone for the sins of the past, but to to kind of reach out and say, hey, look, like we're not, you know, we want to work with you, right? What are some other things that you think that the the church could do um, to kind of, you know, better this for its members? So, so the church has done remarkable work with the NAACP in the last few years. And what Russell Nelson has been doing with the NAACP wouldn't have been possible without Gordon Hinckley blazing the trail. So anyway, President President Oaks and President Nelson um, and the church donated lots of money to the NAACP, to churches, to scholarship funds. And so that's that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But for the church to really move beyond or at least grapple with some of these difficult issues, I'm just going to give you a stream of conscience for a moment. One would be an apology. There has to be mm-hmm. an apology. Yeah. You, uh, there's an old you know, primary hymn that says, do what is right and let the consequences follow. You, you've got to have an apology. Um, a lot of people in the black community want an apology. There needs to be an apology. The um, the second one, there needs to be racial sensitivity training. And again, a lot of people who hear these don't be a racist sermon, they it doesn't apply to me. I'm not a racist. But yet these are the same people who are saying all lives matter. Mm-hmm. And they're you know saying terrible things about black people. So there needs to be racial sensitivity training. And... Um, there needs to be sermonizing with these very specific points as much as 
there are other salient issues in the church, like whether it's paying tithing or whatever. This needs to be a frequent occurrence about this is what racism looks like. This is what it means. This is why it's hurtful. This is why it's, I mean, just consider one little uh, factoid. There's less than 3% of African-Americans are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And yet the ban was lifted in 1978. Ask yourself why that is so. Right. The reason is, is because the church hasn't dealt with race. They just haven't. Right. As much as I'm going to praise President Nelson for all the wonderful things the church has been doing with NAACP, keep it up. That's great. But the reason why, um, or at least in my opinion, some of the reasons why black members haven't been uh, forthcoming with the church or coming to church or staying active in the church is because there is no institutional apology and because they don't find a community in the church. I mean, in, in most places, there are exceptions like Atlanta and Washington, D.C. and, you know, some other places. But in most places, it's still a predominantly white church in the United States. And you walk in and you see white people everywhere. You hear, quote unquote, white music. I mean, the music was written by white people. You see pictures of white people on the on the uh, wall. You see a, you know, a, a hyper uh masculine white Jesus on the wall, which is interesting because Jesus is brown skin. He's a Jew. He's from the Middle East. I mean, mm. you see whiteness everywhere. And um, and I think there are some specifics too with the way that the saints worship, right? If you come from a Baptist tradition or a Pentecostal tradition, where there's a lot of, you know, dancing and, you know, music and uh, Latter-day Saint worship services are more staid. They're just more reserved. So I think that's some of the, the issues that one is faced with. But I think the big issue is the church is just hasn't um, hasn't really dealt, in my opinion, with some of this racial stuff that they like they need to do. They've done some wonderful things with the race and priesthood essay in 2013 with the NAACP work, but there's still so much more to do. And I think the leaders, I've heard Dallin Oaks say this, President Oaks has said that, you know, we prefer to look forward, not backward. And um, but yet you can't go forward until you deal with some of the things in the past. That would be my main point to the leaders today if I were to write them this letter. Sure, sure. I think it, yeah, I think that that's definitely um, a good point. You know, the acknowledgement there um, would would be great. Now wrapping this up, and I appreciate you taking the time to really explain this and hone in on this this history. Um. I've heard you say on podcasts in the past, uh, some of the ones I've listened to you and, and some of the articles you've written, you've, you've kind of intimated you that this stuff really shouldn't be a uh, the subject of a faith crisis for, for members of the church. Um, and uh, perhaps you could kind of just sum up and say what, what you mean by that. Well, you know, first of all, I'm very uncomfortable telling people what should or shouldn't be because oh, okay. I recognize I have privilege, right? I've sure. never been told that I'm cursed. I've never been told that I'm less valiant. I've never been told that if I'm righteous enough, my curse can be lifted and I'll be white again. I mean, I've never been told these things. Sure. So I, I recognize my, my privilege. Um, but what I mean by that is, is that when I get black Latter-day Saints will call me and I, I'm a scholar. I, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a pastoral counselor. Um, I'm a scholar who, who writes Mormon history. 
But when they call me off the record, um, one of the things I always ask them is, is the first thing I ask them is, do you have a community in your, your local ward? Do you feel loved and respected? And if the answer is yes, then I say to them, there's nothing I can say that should tell you to leave because of something Brigham Young said in 1852. Mm -hmm. If you feel loved and accepted, and I get biracial people a lot. Mm -hmm. if, the, if the ward loves and accepts your biracial family, then since you ask, my opinion, brother so-and-so is, who cares what Brigham Young said in 1852? I would think, I would hope that you could reconcile it He's a 19th century leader. He had a lot of views about race that were common to people in his generation. The main focus is how are you treated today in your faith community? And if it's positive, oh goodness, stay with it. If it's not positive, then you don't have to stay with it. Go to, a, go to the Genesis group. These are people from Utah usually. Mm -hmm. Go to the Genesis group and go worship with those saints. You don't need to stay. If you're the only black couple or biracial couple in this all white ward and you don't feel welcome, don't stay. Go to the biracial or go to the Genesis group where you get a mix of black and brown people and mm. you, you'll find a home there. I promise you. So that's what I, you know, I tell those saints and, and it's, it's interesting. Most of the people who call me, they're troubled by something in church history that some leaders said. Mm -hmm. And most of them will say, you know, we, we love our ward. Our bishop's wonderful. And I, oh, the, what's the problem? But I'll, I'll help you walk. I'll walk you through Brigham Young. I, I hope he won't be a problem. Just he's a 19th century person. Just let's leave it there. But if sure. you have a great community here, I think I really think that's what you should focus on. Sure. Yeah. You know, this is a, a kind of a prevailing issue in in historic history and teaching history now is this this uh, concept of presentism. You know, of viewing viewing people from a different time in lenses today. You know. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> Brigham Young today would be canceled, right? I mean, you know, yes, but he wasn't, he's not today. He's in the 19th century when everybody thought those things, you know, you see the same thing with like, I'm a big film guy. I love, I love movies. And, you know, if you were to see the movie with Shirley Temple, where it's the, it's a progressive movie for the time, because it's the first interracial dance between Shirley Temple and the, and the African-American gentleman, but it's a highly racist movie, you know, but at the time that's incredibly progressive. It's the first time that a, a white and black person together are dancing on film. Historically, that's a big deal. But if you just call it racist, you miss what's so important about it. And so you know, yeah, I, I think that what you're saying is is dead on, and that you you know you can't you can't just look at these guys with today's lens because you know you just think you in 1850 would have known better, you know. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, no, I think you know I tell my students um, all the time at school. I had a, a young woman a couple of years ago. She we were talking about the founding fathers, and she just said, "Oh, they're all racist." And I, I said, I said, you know, that I don't know if that's helpful. I mean, you're stating the obvious, mm -hmm. right? They live in the 18th century. George Washington owned 316 slaves. Thomas Jefferson owned 150. Yeah, they're racist, but that's not helpful. What's really uh, more helpful is that when we disaggregate them a little bit and we start to look at their particular views towards slaves. And if you look at it that way, you'll start to see Washington had 
uh, views about slaves that Jefferson didn't hold and that Washington, as he got older, refused to, to break up slave families and felt an obligation to take care of them in their older years, even though he wasn't extracting the labor from them that he once did. Jefferson never felt that way. It's the mm -hmm. same thing about church leaders is that see them for who they are as people and allow them to change, allow them to evolve. One of the things I've, not to pick on Brother Benson tonight, but one of the things I've frequently told people is, including outsiders who aren't Latter-day Saints, they just assume that all the, the leaders of the church were, were uh, that thought that Dr. King was a communist and you know all of that. And I, I can't say how many times I've told Latter-day Saint audiences that I've only seen evidence that Elder Benson thought that Dr. King was a commie. I have suspicions that one other member of the 12 believed it too, but I don't have any hard evidence. It was just Elder Benson who believed this because he had been radicalized into the John Burt Society. Sure. Do that some other time. But um, the other apostles were conservative for sure. Joseph Ealing Smith, Harold B. Lee, all of them, Marky Peterson, very conservative uh, theologically, but they just didn't hold those political extremist views. And, and I, I think that, you know, we, we tend to lump people together in broad brushes all the time. And I think it's important to sort of see them as they are. And hopefully, you know, we can see people as they change because you and I and anyone else listening to this podcast, I mean, we're not the same people who were 10 years ago. Yeah. We've, we've evolved for the better, you know, hopefully. Sure. Um, and we have to allow church leaders that same courtesy because they do, they do um, evolve and and they're just like anybody else. Their, their, uh, their experiences that they meet with, you know, the, the saints that they see at conferences, board conferences or state conferences. I mean, the confessionals they listen to from people's hardships, whether it's LBGTQ or, or sin or whatever it is, something else, um, that does affect them. And it probably affects them more than we're, more than we would think. Yeah, I agree. Wow, this has been deep. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, so when is this new book coming out? Do we have a date yet? Yeah, oh, I wish. It'll be early next year. It's it's okay. a whole year into production. So it's okay. I'm sending it to the editor, in fact, this week. And hmm. once you send the, it to the editor, it takes a whole year. Hmm. So okay. I'm pretty far along in the process, but publishing an academic book takes a long time. Man. That's that's awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. I uh, hope everybody who's listening to this has found this educational and um, learns a little, you know, maybe takes this in and and uh, uses it for some good. Um, so where where's the best place to find your works? Where's the best place to find your books and your articles? Oh, You're like wife, everywhere. I'm all over the place. Guides me all the time for not having my uh, my Facebook or my author page up in current, but. Um, probably, I think if you Google Matt Harris, you'll see there's not a lot of activity there, but my books are listed there. Okay, great. Well, I've, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow your work. I'm going to follow it because these two books have been excellent. The one thing I like about these books too, both of them is that they're not, they're not long. I mean, they're, they're, they're dense, but they're easy reads. Like, you know, you can you can read them and you can understand them. Sometimes, I mean, I look, I went all the way through law school and some of these books, they're super dense and thick and hard to get through. 
Yours are not like that. You, you, you use plain language. It's easy to follow. It's easy. It's a good chronology and it's an easy read. You can read some of these books, you know, in, in a few days and really get the, get what you want. And they're super detail oriented. I'm just, yeah, I just got to give you the same endorsement that Patrick Mason gave you. This has been excellent. Really appreciate it. And so, uh, yeah, so let's, let's have you back. We, I want to, you know, I want to have a conversation about Ezra Taft Benson and, you know, your book Watchmen on the Tower and uh, Making the Mormon Right. I really want to, because that, that book also just as a spearhead for the next time we meet, that book uh, explains a lot as to why we are where we are in the church. And uh, so, um, so anyhow, thank you for coming on uh, again, subscribe. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. If you made it this far, <laughs> thanks for listening.